Hey, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. Great to have you. Uh, if you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do on officehours.global. As always, our first hour is a general discussion of production and IT-related topics where we answer your submitted questions, hopefully by now. Uh, if you've been watching for a while, you understand the Mukana process of putting your questions in. That really drives our entire show until we get to the second hour, at least. And that's typically a bigger dive into a specific topic. Today, we're going to be talking about the uh, the crossover between prosumer and actual uh, professional gear and where are the places that you can save money and rely on the former and when is it required uh, or at least valuable to switch over to the stuff that professionals rely on for getting their work done. So that's the kind of brief as to what's happening today. It's time for us to dive straight into questions. Mitch, what have we got today? Good morning, Bill. First in from Gordon Giesbrecht in Winnipeg, Canada. Based on advice heard on Office Hours, I bought an Insta360 Link camera. I downloaded the software and updated the firmware, and the system won't work on any of our three computers. Customer service is from Hong Kong and only via chat. Three days haven't helped. Advice? Alex is going to start us off here. Alex? Yeah, if you could ask that question again and include what computers you're using. So what uh, is it Mac or PC? What um, operating system version? I think it's mostly going to come down to we, we have heard some things about people having a harder time on PCs than Macs of so getting it running. But it also could um, have to do with the operating system. So let us know what those are. And Courtney. I have a PCs and I haven't tried to audit my Macs yet, but um uh, make sure you're using the USB cable that came with it because USB cables are all USB C cables are all different, and if it you don't yeah, have good. the right one, uh, it can be problems. And especially if you're going to upgrade the firmware, make sure you use the cable that came with it to upgrade the firmware. Plug it in and then check and see if it does its little dance at the beginning uh, to zero out its uh, gimbal. And if it doesn't, it may not be being seen by uh, it may not be getting power. Make sure the light comes on. And second of all. Um, if it doesn't show up as a USB device in whatever your Mac or PC device manager looks like, um, then you probably have a cable problem or the firmware has bricked the thing. You might want to send it back and exchange it for a new one. Okay, that should help, uh, hopefully. Next question. From Alexander Knight in Vancouver, BC, Canada, testing the live stream capabilities of my ATEM for the first time. Modified the XML file and tested a stream to YouTube at 25 megabits per second. The cache quickly reached full status. I tried again at 15 megabits and got the same result. 100 megabits upstream. Thoughts? Uh, Alex is going to help us out here. Alex? Yeah, I'd be curious if if, uh, the, if if the switcher is actually built to do that. So when you when you're kind of hacking into the XML, you may be asking the switcher to do something that's not capable of doing. So um, so that I think that that could be um, one of the the issues you might want to think about there. Uh, I guess what I'd be curious about is when did it work? Did it work at its kind of standard setting, or did uh, did it never work? So that'd be the question I have then. Serge Blanzen. The iking of XML is working because I did it myself with uh, sending it to our SRT server. But the thing I was wondering about is, are you sure that your connection was working to YouTube or anybody that you are trying to send? Because changing the bitrate will not resolve the problem of that problem. And the cache getting full when I was testing was because sometimes my connection was still not working. And the cache was just filling up and nothing happened at the other end. 
Uh, Alex and Mitchell are going to pop in for some more, Alex. Yeah. And, and remember where you're streaming to, are you streaming to, um, I think that here you're, yeah, cause you're going to YouTube. So YouTube should be fine. The big thing you have to make sure of is that you're getting packets back too. And so, um, you know, the way that RTMP works is it needs to hear, get the packets back to it as well as going to it. So if you're not getting those back for some reason, we've had issues as well. Probably not your problem, but another thing to look at. Um, but I think that what I would do is start going up one meg at a time from five megs and see when it stops working. It might be right past where the default is. Mitchell? I like uh, Alex's suggestion that there may be something in that XML file that's given it a headache. And I happen to have a little inside knowledge that Alexander got his ATEM from somebody else. So it's used and it was swapped. Um, so you should clear out that XML and let it build a new one and see if you still have the problem and then use the advice that you just heard. But um, I think you're, my bet's on uh, something weird in the XML file that somebody gave it to you with. And Alexander, you're here a good little bit, so make sure you come back and let us know how things resolved. If you find a way to fix it or at least diagnose what the problem actually was, the community would benefit from that. Let's move on to the next question. From Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington, and right here on our panel, who's going to see Avatar in a Screen X theater? And Sky Gleason starts us. Sky, are you? I've, I, I was just introduced to this yesterday. We were going to go watch the film, and in Issaquah, uh, a little town near us, they have a Screen X theater. And the closest we'd come to that was the Cinerama, but I'm looking at, it says it's 270 degrees, so it looks like it's three different projectors on three different screens. I, that's hard to, to do. In fact, the big cinema Cinerama dome here in Seattle that Paul Allen refurbished for the, the Star Wars um, franchise, that has recently closed. So I'm, are we going back to the old three screen thing? So I'm curious. It's interesting. I've seen a film in screen X, but I'm let, Nigel's going to uh, pop in next. Go ahead, Nigel. Actually, I have more of a question. Uh, whether it's ScreenX or anything, are we using 3D glasses? Uh, the 3D element of this seems not to be carrying in the marketing message. I assume it's 3D. I, I'm not sure I could have survived Avatar 1 in 2D, um, but it was great in 3D, and I've not heard anything about 3D for this one yet. ScreenX is not 3D. It's a different technology, but Courtney? Uh, yeah, and I looked at uh, our uh, ScreenX is a Regal Theatres thing. Um it's uh, the Regal theaters that I go to uh, do not have the, the uh, ScreenX set up yet, so I haven't been able to see what it's going to do. But what was curious is that uh, when I looked at the screenings of Avatar, and it took over about six theaters at the Regal theaters, and the 3D version, and there is a 3D version, was playing in one of the smaller theaters. The bigger theaters were playing the 2D version. There's an IMAX size theater, and there's a, a Dolby Vision theater. And those were both playing 2D versions. So it's interesting that they're thinking that maybe there's not as big an audience for the 3D version as there is for the flat version. Alex. Yeah, I mean, I, I actually think that I, Avatar is one of the few movies that I would actually go to see in 3D because I just know that James Cameron knows how to actually shoot it. Um, you know, and so I think that IMAX 3D would probably be a lot of fun and I'm probably going to go see it in the next week just to just to see what it looks like. Um, but, uh, but I think that uh, I the ScreenX... I've, I, I've had a little experience with it, and I just find that I, doing a lot of this makes the, the show not very fun. <laughs> like, like, like I, I feel like I'm missing parts of the movie. And, and, and so I, I don't like, I like having the whole, 
I like to be able to just see the very edges of the screens usually, um, you know, to, to have that experience. And so I'm not a big fan of like, oh, we're going to put it all around you because there's a lot of things going on in the movie that I need to see. And then I suddenly feel like I'm not seeing them. Yeah, about a year ago, I went to my first Screen X presentation, and it was really interesting. What they do is you get there in the theater, and the th the screen is just regular. It looks like you're in a regular theater. Then when the movie starts, they project on the side walls of the actual theater. So yeah. literally, the content goes over. <laughs> There's still the exit sign in the front left corner. But they manage it so that it can be reasonably immersive, particularly if the screen was shot, uh, if the movie was shot with Screen X content in mind. They don't just stretch it out. They actually have additional content for the two on the side. It's an interesting phenomenon. Um, I'm not sure it's my favorite way to see a movie, but uh, it was interesting the one time I saw it. Courtney, you had another thought? It's interesting whether Regal paid them, uh, paid, you know, Cameron to render extra CGI for the side screens. And the other thing is the psychological impact of, of on the brain. And you wonder because your foveal vision is sh sharpest acuity directly in front of you. And then the, the sharpness fades off as it, you reach the, your limits of uh, peripheral vision on left and right sides. And if you see all three screens in perfect focus, I wonder how that affects your, your brain. If it has some effect on it, like, uh, you know, making you sick with uh, using the Oculus virtual reality glasses. Yeah, I saw the new Elvis movie um, in in Screen X, and I enjoyed the the movie as much. I, it didn't really affect me that much. It's a shock at first when you know you're not expecting content on the walls, literally, and there's suddenly content on the walls. But I didn't find it difficult to follow the story or get too distracting out there. I'm mostly watching the screen, and it's just filling up your peripheral vision with something. So um, it was a decent experience. Again, I wouldn't pay extra for it, but um, I didn't mind it. Mitch, you had a thought? Yeah, when they bring it out in Cinerama, I'll be there for it. There you go. Uh, it's not how the West was won. It's a different thing. All right. I think we've, we've pushed this to death. Let's go on to the next question. From Douglas Carmichael, in this behind-the-scenes video from a Nashville live video company, Moo TV, I noticed an Allen & Heath SQ5 digital mixer in the video rack. What could it be used for? Alex, you have any thoughts? Yeah, a lot of times that can be used for pre-show. Um, it's not going to be definitely, most likely not used for the concert itself, but it can be used where someone can kind of double up and, and um, pay attention to some audio or mix in audio with comms and do a lot of other things. A lot of times someone will want something there. So it seems like a pretty heavy-handed thing to put there, but um, but it can be done in, you know, I'm, we're going to manage so you have the main desk paying attention to a lot of things that are that they want to pay attention to before a show. And the TD may be paying attention to that, or the TD may be paying attention to a stream. So um, it could be like literally, oh, the stream doesn't matter. We just have to tuck some stuff up and down. It's not like we're going to, they're going to take the feed from the from the um, system or from the uh, main area and maybe tweak it a little bit and send it out. And that can be a stream for, it's usually not a stream for the fans. It's usually a stream for somebody else to, to look at. So that that those are hypothetical ideas about what that could possibly be. I looked at this next question. And I went, what? But John, uh, Mitch, go ahead and help us out here. No, it's uh, John Preto from Las Vegas. And here on our panel, he has a statement he wants to make. After further review, it's been brought to the notice of this, this statistician <laughs> that JJ has in fact had a hundred percent attendance record and Harshi Trevetti has had 123 days in a row attendance. So I oh, wanted to right. I wanted to note those two outstanding attendance records. Well, bravo <laughs> to each of you. That's exceptional. There so you and thank you for correcting the record. 
<laughs> That's great. Let's move on to the next question. Next question from John Foltz in Ceilings Grove, Pennsylvania. I've got a cable TV provider and an Apple TV. The cable TV folks say I can log in through the Apple TV. Is anyone doing that? Is it worth going that direction? Let's start with Courtney Gooden. Uh, yeah, it is. Uh, I have Spectrum TV, and they have an app that runs on my Roku uh, Fire TVs, Roku-based Fire TVs, so it's probably the same, similar situation on your Apple TV. And I use it on, like, upstairs TVs that don't have cable boxes on them. They have antennas for receiving over-the-air TV, and then they've got a Fire Stick, which receives uh, TV over Wi-Fi. And the Fire Stick 4K, you can see a lot of content in 4K that you can't get from your cable box, from your cable provider. Likely your cable provider may be giving you just 1080 at the max, and a lot of times just 720 on some feeds. And broadcast these days seems to be at 720 as well, unless you've got uh, uh, new next-gen TV uh, receiver in your uh, TV, or uh, ATSC3. So, uh, a lot of TVs are broad. Uh, all the stations in my neighborhood, all the regular stations, are broadcasting in 720p for high def, and only the ones that have the ATSC3 are, are transmitting in 1080p. So that cable app can uh, get you streams and can get you higher resolution stuff. Plus, if your cable box goes down but you still have internet from a different supplier, uh, you can still watch cable to all your all your regular programs. Peter Sargent. So yeah, I did this. I did this for a while. It turns out there's another benefit if you have cable on your internet, which is what I did for many years. Um, the Apple TV, at least, will recognize that and say, "Do you want me to log into your cable provider?" And a lot of the channels that were that you're paying for on cable will suddenly appear. Uh, the apps on your Apple TV will also allow you to access without paying for the app itself. Interestingly enough, things like HBO Go and things like that just simply appear. But Apple has some sort of way of determining, you know, it asks you what your service provider is and locks it in and and, and uses that to access the, the, the channels that way. Mitchell. The Apple user experience is superior to any other system out there. So the more you can stay in that uh, GUI, the better. Uh, the question is whether or not the cable system or the people providing the uh, video are supplying Apple with the uh, the appropriate signal. Because in my direct TV that I have, um, I pay for 4K, but there's only like four channels that are actually doing 4K. Um, I haven't tested it yet, and I will as soon as I'm done with the show to see if it does manage to make it through uh, 4K or at least 1080, 1080p maybe, 1080p 60. All of those things are going to look better on the Apple TV. And just for reference, uh, my friend who works at the uh, the local um, Magnolia Theater at Best Buy says that they install 90% of their new theater systems with Apple TV as the front end. Hmm, interesting. Uh, uh, Alex? Yeah, you probably should do it now at, at the moment. I mean, most likely all of this is slowly fading away as the interest in, there's so many people cord cutting. I mean, it is, a, it, a, you know, broadcast cable is in free fall. So, so the, um, so you won't need to do it for much longer, but if you're, if you're doing it right now, it probably makes sense. And let's move on to the next question. And it's in from Matthias Steher in Stockholm, Sweden. Resolve was just released for iPad. What workflows could you imagine using it for taking into account that the displays on iPads are great? And let's start with Sky. I would imagine on set, 
immediately following a black magic production to be able to preview your your on a nice portable screen like that for uh, the client and or the, the director or whoever is the decider at that at that point of the process i'm i'm of course used to a much bigger production with all of the bigger monitors and things like that but to have the ability to do a playback immediately this seems like a really efficient way but I also think the second generation or the second third fourth generation of the the new film people are going to be able to really push this device very quickly Alex, I mean, obviously, eventually it's going to have everything in it, but this is just the easy, the easiest things for it then to add to it right now. I do agree with Sky that on set is probably going to be one of the best uses for it. Uh, I could also see people, you know, playing with ideas in on a plane or in in transit. I'm just like I just want to open something up and and uh, do a little cut or do some little color correction to kind of think about that that process. So, in in transit and also um, on set, I think are going to be the two big uses. Mitchell. Uh, check back in one of our uh, uh, archived uh, office hours shows. Felipe did an excellent uh, review of it, and uh, it's it's looking cool. Can't wait. Yeah, to see about it. two weeks ago, Felipe Baez. So look for his name in the in the list of things, and you'll get a nice primer on exactly what it does and what it doesn't do, and where it might fit in the world. So good good advice. Let's go to the next question. Chris Weider, Lafayette, Indiana, uh, steps in with a question. New wireless Rode GoTo firmware, camera presets, nested recordings, and a new wizard via Rode Central have revised the battery level indicator for accuracy. Have any of the panelists noticed battery problems with their Rode GoTo too? Nigel, do you have any idea? Well, and I didn't have battery problems, but I was having technical problems, and the receiver just just didn't work sometimes. And I wonder whether I'd been pressing the power button too hard, and had broken it because I'm very aggressive with my power buttons. And when there's no click, you can you know sometimes have to hold it. So I contacted Road, and they said, no, no, just go to the new firmware, which I did a couple of weeks ago, and it's been fine. The one thing, and all the features they say look great. They look great. They seem to work well. The one thing they're showing is a slightly different UI on the receiver, which I don't get. So I don't know if that's a new generation of devices, but you also need to update your road uh, software on your Mac or your PC to make it all work. There you go. Hopefully that was helpful, Chris. Let us know if everything works smoothly from this point on. Let's go to the next question. Tim Holm from San Lorenzo, California, asking, when testing your surround sound and home theater system, what is your go-to clip? Jesse Kessler is going to start us off here. Jesse? Uh, I use a clip from Mad Max Fury Road, and it actually starts at uh, frame one, and it goes through the end credits. It's a really good clip. Highly recommend it. Nigel DeSau. Yeah, so of course it really matters what audio system you have, um, what uh, uh, you know, the, how you're set up, whether you're set up with DTS or or whatever the sound system is. But I can tell you that when we're really showing the home theaters, we tend to use a source which is called a Kaleidoscape, which is a a really high level. It's a think of an Apple TV, but with you know with a hard disk and a much better sound system. And the four most frequent things I'm seeing people demonstrate are the whole of Mad Max Fury Road, as Jesse said, the whole the whole movie, that's a bit long for a demo. Uh, the opening to The Greatest Showman uh, is very, very popular. Um, in uh, Unburden, the, the bombing raid um, in that movie. Um, and then the other one is Gravity. If you want to test your... Um, your Dolby system, uh, the gravity, particularly when Sandra Bullock's stuck at the end of the arm and it's spinning round, that's 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 a really good one as well. Alex, uh, yeah, what 
what I did. I can't release them right now, but I know I know everyone gets upset when I say that. I built a channel checker. So I just built a channel checker that I play that says, you know, right or left, right, center, surround right, surround left, you know, like then it just just goes through those. And then I know that those speakers are being used, um, you know, in that process. After that, I tend to listen to Rush, uh, Tom Sawyer uh, is usually one that just from music, from a music perspective, there's a problem with it that the voice doesn't come down the center speaker. It goes through the left and right, which gives it kind of a weird sound, but it, but it really uses up a lot of the, uh, um, a lot of the space. Um, and those are the big things that I listen to to just see how things are, are looking. Serge Blanton. My go-to is the Matrix, the, the Matrix, the first one, uh, physical disc, not streaming, because the quality is better, and also the Matrix because the bullet going through my head—it's the perfect test for me. Mitchell Hill, any Star Wars space battle or the THX open with or without O. George. There you go. Tim, hopefully that'll give you a good uh, variety of excellent content to test out your system. Let's go to the next question. Jesse Kester from Glendale and here on our panel. I'd love to have a piece of software that scans a drive when I plug it in and creates a text file of the folder trees on that drive. The dream is to search a text doc for files instead of plugging in endless loose drives. Does this exist? Oh, yeah. Let's go to John Preto for a thought. Uh, a couple of thoughts. Well, you could always use grep to search your entire drive if you know Linux or Unix at all. But the other thing, the other utility that I use that I find very, very helpful is Daisy Disk. There's three or four of these out that gives me a visualization of the disk and how big the files are. Super, super useful for finding giant old videos on my drive and then deleting them very easy. I found it very helpful. Alex. Yeah, I'm... I have to admit, I raised my hand thinking I'd be able to figure find find the name of it. We haven't I haven't used it for a long time, but what we did, what you don't what you think you want is a is a um is is a is a text file. What you really want is a database. And so what we did for thousands of drives is we would scan every drive and we had this massive database of those drives, and then we could we just numbered all the drives. Like this is these are all, all of our backups, and then you were basically able to search for a file. And if you had good naming conventions, so if, if your project files had good naming conventions and your drives had good naming conventions, basically you could find anything out of fifteen hundred files in ten minutes because it would just tell you where the drive was. Um, you know, it's on this drive, and you could see you, you could see all the structures you're talking about. But I mean, you might be able to get a text text one. I don't know about. I don't know how that. I don't know how the, how you do that, but. That database is super was super powerful. If you have a lot of drives, it's a great way to back things up. And I have been using for probably twenty years a little uh, utility called Disk Catalog Maker. I think it's Disk Catalog. That actually might be the one that I'm. <laughs> yeah, it is incredibly fast. It is incredibly simple. You literally invoke the program and then you mount any drive, and in fifteen seconds, it has everything cataloged into this text list. Uh, it'll tell you which drive. And if you search, you can search across the entire millions of files library. And in three seconds, it'll have all the information of all the instances of that file. In fact, faster than three seconds. That's the one, that's the one I was actually trying to come up with. So that's, Yeah, that's it's been around forever and it's super useful. Uh, and, and I'm still, I'm kind of amazed that they've supported it and it's still going and it's still working fine on all the modern systems, even though they started it in something 
like, I don't know, the year 2000 or something. It's, it goes way back. Let's move on to the next question. Okay, Bill. Uh, Andre Dole from Berlin has a question. How can I reuse a webinar that has already taken place, like using it for testing without practice session and using it for the event as well? It should be set as not recurring meeting. Uh, Peter Sargent. Well, I, I, I'm assuming webinars work the same as meetings. You can always save as a template, save the meeting structure as a template, and then recall that template anytime you want to build a new meeting. And that's what I do in meetings all the time because I run the same meeting probably three or four times a month. Alex? Yeah, if you go back and change that date, it'll just, it'll just uh, make it go again. Although I would never... I would use a template, exactly what Peter's talking about. I would get it to what I want, do the practice with it, save it out as a template and load it back in. I would be really careful of not like doing my test on my, especially if you have people registered already because it'll, it'll tell, it'll send reminders, it'll do all kinds of other things. You don't want to have your a registrants um, being part of something that you're testing, in my opinion. So I would, I would do it as a, I'd get it just the way I like it, do all my research with it, and then I would save it out as a template. Okay, let's move on to the next question. Paul Buchan from Columbus, Ohio, asking, when the Insta360 link turns on, it always returns to a fairly wide shot. Is there a way to force a preset as the default? I'm guessing I'm missing something obvious. Alex. Uh, you should be able to save, you, you can save a preset, and then when you hit it, it's going to jump right to that. I don't know if it would come back up and be that way, but remember that you can save that preset, and that preset should be, you should be able to save it even between open and closes. Um, so you should be able to um, just hit a button and have it go back to where it was. But I think it will always go back to its end state when it launches. So hopefully that helps you. Let's move on to the next question. And it's from Mike Edwards in Brooklyn, New York. Morning, guys. Does the DeckLink Duo or Quad output screens outside of apps that recognize it? I would like to send desktop feeds in addition to present uh, pro presenter feeds to Video Hub. What is the best workflow and tools to use in this case? Thanks. Uh, Alex, not a hundred percent certain, but I think that you would still, I think in this case, you'd still end up using black siphon to do that. Um, but I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah. I'd have to think about that one a little bit. Yeah. This one might be a little bit tricky. So, um, hopefully, uh, if you're not content with this, come back and try it another time with another panel and maybe we'll be luckier there. Let's go to the next question. From Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas, asking, what's the minimum and optimum power supply to plug an Apple MagSafe disk into? What's the difference between MagSafe and wired charging? Courtney's going to help us out here. Courtney? Well, generally, most, as a rule, most inductive chargers are slower than a plugged-on charger because the plugged-on charger will then talk to the uh, device and go into a higher voltage and charge it faster. And it has to be able to control it and monitor its temperature at the same time while it's charging to safely charge it. So uh, that's primarily the dif uh, difference. And you probably need at least two and a half, uh, 2.5 amps uh, as for your power supply that you're going to plug your uh, MagSafe charger into uh, if you're going to use uh, somebody else's power supply for that. Okay. Hopefully that helped, uh, Paul. Let's move on to the next question. Dan Goldstein in New York uh, metro area has Zoom OSC retired the target ID list functionality. The new select participant workflow has not proved worthy, especially when I know participant names ahead of time. 
Uh, we we're a little uncertain on this. I think this is Zoom OSC is still in development, obviously uh, actively there, and I'm not sure uh, that any particular functionality is fully set. Alex, do you have any insight on this? Yeah, I I think that we're going to have a um, we're going to probably have some labs where we kind of talk about it, where everyone who's playing with OSC is going to be talking about that next week. So um, definitely jump in there and let us know what's not working there, because a lot of people that are connected to it pay attention to those kinds of things. So um, so anyway, so so definitely hold that um, and let us know what I would definitely do is in the OSC conversations inside of our Discord is to outline exactly what any, if you're having an issue with Zoom OSC. In our in our Discord, you should be talking about it because the people who are pretty close to that product are definitely there. <laughs> so if you want to have that conversation and you and there's an issue that you're trying to solve, um, I think that I would I would definitely bring it up there. Okay, move on to the next question, please. And from Douglas Carmichael, I've installed the Digico Quantum 225 offline editor on my virtual Windows PC, but it won't appear in my Windows add remove programs list. How do I uninstall the editor if it doesn't appear on the list? We've got some help for you from Mitchell and Courtney. Mitchell, take it away. Uh, observation, uh, usually that's pretty sw sloppy programming because uh, it should uh, report to the registry where you can be found. Um, a lot of times, Douglas, in the same folder that the uh, application was installed, there may be an uninstall icon in there, and that's the next one to go to. And the other part is just to go to the exe file and uh, delete it if it's causing you trouble. But the problem is, on a Windows installation particularly, is it likes to scatter files everywhere, all over the computer, on the registry, uh, drivers, all kinds of things. So um, to have a look at it. And, and by the way, I'm not sure why you would have an offline uh, program like that on your, because you don't own a Digico, last I checked. <laughs> Courtney. Yeah, once you install it, if it's a legitimate Windows program using the normal Windows installer, it will have uninstall routines that are part of the uh, package that it installs in your program files, x86 usually. Uh, and if it doesn't exist uh, to un in the list of add-remove programs, then it didn't do that correctly. So what you might try is going to Digico, reinstall it, and then try and remove it. And that way... Uh, it might uh, install, let it finish installing and make sure it finishes installing correctly uh, because maybe your installation didn't complete completely uh, to have the uninstall data set up. So try that. Yeah, that's been my experience with a couple of programs I have. If I try to just go even into the deepest levels that I have access to on my computer and throw things in the trash, sometimes it doesn't install the deep hooks and things and the uninstall program for it is the only thing that'll do that. And I've had the same thing that Courtney's run into because I've thrown away physically some aspects of the program. The uninstaller won't work, so I have to reinstall the program and then uninstall it. And that has succeeded for me. It's a little goofy. Uh, next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana has a question. So since Microsoft is buying Netflix, do we think streaming play for games will actually move the needle finally? Or much like Google Stadium, will this just be another also-ran experiment? Nigel? So I think we should be careful. I don't believe Microsoft has announced that it is buying Netflix. I think it's been a rumor going around for about six months. I don't know whether this is people trying to drive Netflix share price up, which they seem to have done about 65% in the last few months, um, or, or how real it is. But, you know, the interesting thing about these sorts of rumors, as, as the cadence of them comes, 
one wonders whether there's a certain amount of truth in it. I would think if, if Microsoft was looking, I think gaming would be one part of it. I think the other thing they would be looking at is content. I think Apple's done a pretty good job with Apple Plus in, in a very specific specific niche. And I think Microsoft is uh, and Apple look at each other um, in a sort of friendly rivalry for space. Uh, and they they have always done that for as long as I've, I've known uh, both of them. One wonders, though, if, if Microsoft did, it would be a lot for them to consume, given Microsoft's management system, although it's better than it used to be. One wonders whether the next step then is that Apple goes after Disney, and uh, Disney spins off ESPN and maybe ABC, and uh, that would be the next step. Ooh, interesting speculation. Sky, thoughts? I agree with Nigel's. With the, from the business point, the, the big conglomerates are always going to try to absorb new concepts so that they can you know expand their their profit margin in different areas so to see microsoft again if it is truth or, or fiction i think 2023 will tell but you get all these boxes you got to have something to put on it and that's why you'll see a, historically a lot of major corporations buying production companies like you know when, when sony was purchased or um so they bought Paramount, they needed material to go onto their platforms. And so this is an interesting uh, concept to be talking about. Uh, Alex. Yeah, it makes tons of sense for for Microsoft. Um, and it might make sense for Netflix as well. They they are, uh, you know, they have money issues. <laughs> like keeping up with, you know, keeping up with the Joneses when the big Joneses are so big is really complicated. And I think that they are, you know, um, having trouble, you know, getting enough out there. And just think, uh, Microsoft can bring a whole, uh, all the LinkedIn learning stuff right into Netflix. <laughs> so there, there you have it. So they can, they can add a whole, whole whole bunch of stuff to their library. You won't even have to go to LinkedIn learning. You can just have a Netflix account and you can watch your LinkedIn learning. That'd be pretty cool. Uh, John Preto. FTC blocked the Activision and acquisition and they would block this one too. Oh, I think the SEC will get it. Uh, Courtney. Sony bought Paramount? I, I don't think so. <laughs> I, you know, MGM they bought. Paramount. I think I, I own Paramount stock and C, uh, Viacom stock and, and you haven't seen CBS stock. And I haven't gotten <laughs> like a check from Sony. No, but I think uh, Microsoft. Microsoft is looking to get into. You know, they have uh, distribution. They've got cloud services, but they don't have uh, original uh, programming uh, on any of their uh, on any of their. Uh, you know, different uh, arms of the pro of the uh, company. So I think it'd be a wise move, whether the FTC will allow it or not, or SEC will allow it or not, is uh, a big question because it is a big monopolistic move. But they don't have any, uh, you know, they're not buying up too many competitors. They're not competing in this area already. So they're just acquiring a competitor. So, Alex, thoughts? Yeah, the, um, one of the other things is that it's going to become really valuable as we start to see a merge of content, whether it's AR, VR, um, other kinds of content, having rights to entertainment properties becomes valuable. That's why like Disney is the, the big one because you've got Marvel and Star Wars and, and all these other things that you can pack and all the Disney stuff that you could package back in, Pixar and everything else that Disney's done in the last 50 years. Um, and so there's tons and tons of IP, <clears throat> excuse me, there's tons and tons of IP that you could actually um, incorporate into other things than than what they're than linear um, de developments, and so I think it's there's a lot of really interesting possibilities. I think that John's right that the FTC it'll depend on who's in office and who's running the FTC, but the FTC will definitely at least put up some kind of fight. Okay, well, interesting topic to talk about. Let's move on to the next question here. 
Yeah, but the question is, Paul, Terry, Wallace in Austin, Texas, what's the top dog machine offered by either Melee or B-Link? This is a possible softball for Courtney. Courtney hasn't raised his hand yet, and I'm disappointed. Can we, can we talk you into addressing this, Courtney? Good. Excellent. I I, need, I just saw the question come up, and I went, ooh, I need to research that a little more because <laughs> I haven't bought uh, either one of those uh, in in uh, about a year or so. So they've all come out with new uh, – Melee has just come out with some new versions of their uh, Celeron processors, the Quieter series, which is the fanless PCs, which use the uh, 5105 uh, processor. Uh, they've gotten a little bit bigger. They've changed their form factor a little bit, but it's uh, they're still great for uh, doing the kind of things like a media server or uh, uh, playback, you know, generation for for or storing all your audio, video files, et cetera, putting them on the network because it's got all the required parts. It it makes no noise. It's great for doing, uh, you know, one or two channel uh, recording and recording studio because it's completely uh, fanless. And uh, it can handle, you know, digital recording up to, you know, 10 or 11 tracks without too much trouble. I wouldn't try and do a full Pro Tools setup on it. But, uh, you know, if you're just tracking one or two channels, it'd uh, be fine for that. But, um, yeah, they're cheap. They're uh, the Melees. I tend to move to the Melees. The B-Links have more uh, full-function PCs in a small package. Their package has gotten bigger. The original B-Link, you know, as I showed the other day, was this lovely half-size version. The new sizes are probably about the same footprint as this, about the size of a CD case. and But they're double height to allow them better cooling um, because they do have fans in them. The B-Links do. And uh, it allows you to put a 2.5-inch SSD in there. But the uh, Melees have room for an NVMe drive, so you can put up to 4 terabytes inside that little Melee, which has a, a nice little uh, tiny uh, fanless and portless uh, case to it. It seems to be plastic, but it's embedded with a type of carbon or some type of copper metal that's embedded in the plastic and has ridged tops to dissipate heat, so don't be alarmed if you get the melees and they get super hot. It does keep your coffee warm, though. It's a dual-use uh, appliance. Excellent. Thanks for the answer. Let's move on to the next one. Harshid Trivedi from Daytona Beach, Florida, and here in our panel asks, can someone describe who all the voices were behind the 12 days of an office hours holiday song? And Preto. Yeah, I was surprised they didn't put him in the description so your screen reader could have read this. It produced by Dale Nabata. Uh, intro was Brian Anderson. Month one, Mike Sweeney. Month two, Brian Anderson. Month three, Leland Best. Month four, Greg Curta. Month five, Jeffrey Powers, month six, Andrew Lipnick, uh, month seven, uh, Jeff Francis, month eight, Javier Alfaro, uh, month nine, JJ McKenna, it was a great voice, JJ, month 10, Victor Callao, and uh, month 11, Dale Nabata, and month 12 was Grant Whitehead. So there you go, the fabulous piece of work for the 12 Days of Office Hours holiday song and if you haven't seen it yet, if you somehow have missed this, go back. Uh, I'm sure it's on the website or somewhere. I think I've seen it in a couple of the listings. It's just fun to watch. Let's move on to that. Oh, Mitchell has a thought. Sorry about no, that. I'm just going to say what you just said. Basically, uh, we can post the link to it on Event Chat. And if you watch the credits, the back end suggests you, you can see the full list of names of uh, the people involved in it. And I think we're working on a second hour on uh, how that um, how that came together. So uh, looking forward to seeing that. 
and it'll be fun. A lot of talent went into this. It was just charming as heck. And so both Dale, who ramrodded the project, and uh, Brian Anderson, who did uh, the video for it, great job to both of you. Let's move on to the next question. And the next question coming in from Douglas Carmichael. Many educational institutions still cling to the physical computer lab model. With the growth of virtual desktop technologies from on-premise to hosted services, could you see educational institutions moving away from said labs? Uh, let's start with Peter Sargent. It's interesting how in the last 50 years, I think things have gone full circle. You know, when I started working with computers we, in college, we didn't have computer labs. We had a room full of 029 key punches. And then we would turn our decks into the, to the, uh, to the computer folks and, and we'd pick up our listings the next day. Um, we eventually evolved to computer labs. If for no other reason, there was, it was only rudimentary time sharing and it was expensive and the equipment was expensive. So keep it all in one room and do your thing. Uh, nowadays, there's absolutely no reason not to use uh, remote virtual, uh, virtualized computing systems to do your computer labs. Um, I know here at uh, my old alma mater, they've done that. Texas A&M, UT does that. Even our local community college here in Austin does that. So we don't have computer labs anymore. So I think the institutions are, are slowly changing as their cost structures change. And Alex, yeah, <clears throat> the problem with the problem with this is mostly that there's an ongoing cost. <laughs> so there's, you know, you have when you buy the computer, you have people using it all the time. You know, cloud is really good if I want to use it for a couple hours here and there. If I leave it on all the time, twenty four seven, it starts to get it, it'll pay for that computer pretty quickly. And so the the issue is is that right now. The, the ongoing cost of leaving a computer, because a lot of computer labs, I don't know what it's like now, but when I was there, the computer lab was running almost all the time. <laughs> like, like there was someone in there on it, uh, you know, because they, those were resources we wanted. And so, so I think that I, 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 you'd really have to do the math carefully of over a year, is that computer, the computer that I'm getting, how, how much am I going to use it? And when would it start, when would I start paying more than just buying it? Okay, let's move on to the next question. Next question in from Alex Lindsay in Novato, California, right here on our panel. YouTube TV has acquired the rights for NFL Sunday ticket. What does the panel think? Nigel, start us off. So it appears they paid two and a half billion dollars compared to what DirecTV had paid before, which was about a billion and a half. I, I'm not surprised DirecTV is out of that business. DirecTV, since it got spun off from AT&T, is spinning out of control. And I think they are milking that cow as hard as they can up to the point where it dies. And I will get bitter about DirecTV separately if you'd like me to, because uh, I have uh, some run-ins with them. Um, having said that, I thought that, that Apple was going to go for that business. I think um, that was interesting when Apple pulled out. And I wonder whether how big a business that Sunday ticket is, because the number of people in non-commercial bars and restaurants who want to watch all of those, I think is a fairly limited, and I'm not a great... Um, football, as we call it, uh, watcher, but I have family members who are who seem to get a vast majority of the games across broadcast. So actually requiring all of them, I would think was a fairly limited market, maybe enough to cover two and a half billion, maybe a great piece of marketing for uh, YouTube TV. And Serge? If they could bring YouTube TV in Canada, I will be happy, first thing. <laughs> The second part of it is right now I can watch pretty much 
half of the NFL games in Canada, but I have to go through like multiple channels and it's a mess and it's difficult to to use. So having an app with a better interface, if it's Apple TV, fine. If it's YouTube TV, I don't mind. But I think the broadcast uh, signal is not is not up to date for these kind of uh, watch party. Alex, I think they're the right partner. I mean, I think that they it, it made the most sense. You know, this is the uh, you know they're making money in a different way. So the problem that that a lot of TV networks and anybody else bidding on this is that they would be trying to make money on advertising, and you can't make money on advertising with the NFL because it's too expensive especially now because all the, the, it's all getting bid up by, you know, basically the tech companies are taking over this because the broadcast companies are in a shrinking uh, income <laughs> income stream. And so they can't compete with the ones that are expanding their income stream. And so uh, this makes so much sense. So many people are going to buy U- YouTube TV just to have the NFL ticket. It's going to be an easy, even if they just do it during the season, but then they're going to get addicted because YouTube TV is a far superior way to watch TV than, actu- than any other service that you can get. It's not just cable. It's that I can sit there and hit, I want to record 30, 50, 100 shows. It keeps all of them. There's no drive limit. There's no whatever. You 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 know, you, you have this always there. Um, you know, you can play it on many devices. You can do, you know, there's so much to it. It's so much better than cable. And so what will happen is, is a lot of people are going to jump on because people like me want to watch the Pittsburgh Steelers and I can never watch it because uh, I can, you know, it's only, they're on only only in the evening games can I actually see the Pittsburgh Steelers play. And now I'll be able to watch all of them. I'm super excited. <laughs> like now, the one thing I don't know if the NFL is totally calculated is people like me will never get the NFL ticket again. The NFL, you know, the NFL, their app is, you know, dead to me. I mean, it's, it's such a frustrating app in itself. So the fact that it is, it is painfully um, underdeveloped and, and pain to, painful to use. And the fact that YouTube TV, theoretically, even if I have to pay a little more, it's worth it because I never want to use that app again. <laughs> so, John Preto. I just wonder what Apple's final bid was, Alex. What do you think? I think Apple. So I don't, I don't think Apple, I think Apple, as they just got closer to it, I don't think Apple ran out of money. I think they just decided that it wasn't, the right model for them. The problem with it is, is that you're kind of stuck with terrestrial broadcast. So, you know, it's hard for you to innovate. The MLS is going to allow, I think Apple, this was a package that Apple put their name into. They wanted to see what it was going to look like. But I don't think that Apple ever, I think as they got closer, it wasn't about the money. I think it was really about the fact that it just didn't match their model. YouTube TV is more of just give us your content and we'll broadcast it out. Now, maybe with the NFL, they'll start to look at innovation and, and they're doing a lot of things, you know, because YouTube TV could theoretically broadcast 4K and do surround and do all kinds of other things that are a little harder to do in broadcast. Um, they have a lot more control over that. So those are things that would be really interesting to see where they go with it. But I think Apple wants to innovate faster than what the broadcasters are going to want to do. And I think MLS is going to give them the perfect platform to prove that. Um, I don't think that the NFL will. <laughs> Do you think, Alex, that it's because in part football, soccer, what we call, is a bigger global footprint and Apple's looking global rather than No, I think US? that MLS, the reason they grabbed MLS is because it's small in the United States and they can, you know, if, if you took the NFL off of broadcast you know, or, or only handed it a little bit back, people would go crazy. You know, like they would just, you know, the, 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 there'd be people with pitchforks and fires and things like that. MLS, they're giving a lot of people who didn't have access to their favorite, so- you know, soccer team, um, the access to see it on, on on Apple TV because it's a much smaller market at the moment. It also means that because they're 
not dealing with a lot of other broadcasters and they have they're they they're taking total control apple can continue to innovate so they're gonna i think that again you're gonna see integration with ar and vr you're gonna see um you know so that's gonna be one thing that they're gonna add i think they're gonna add higher frame rate i think you're gonna see in three to four years you'll see 120 frames per second at 4k potentially 8k um you know hdr they'll they're gonna use that as a way to prove a model that and play a game that they're one of the only ones that can play <laughs> you know so so that's the that's part of it when you own all the hardware um they have they're in a unique position to cause a lot of trouble um in a way that other folks may not be able to but i think that again i'm super excited about this this purchase oh uh, yeah it's good again courtney i'm not uh, i don't watch that much sports but one question i had is uh does youtube tv going to be uh uh they have to abide by the blackouts that they used to uh, apply. The NFL used to apply when they play. You know, your, if the team is playing in your major city, if they would have to black out the game in that city if the game was not sold out. Uh, how are they going to handle that since it's a streaming service and you may not have as much control over its distribution and streaming and replay, but uh, or at least it's live live carriage on uh, YouTube TV. So. Are there going to be blackouts uh, in the areas where the games are occurring? Well, Peter Sargent's in the queue next. Peter? So the other thing is the search touched on it lightly is, you know, at least YouTube will carry that in the in the U.S., but outside the U.S., they're still the NFL still has their rights for broadcast in various countries and various agreements so that, you know, and, and unfortunately that doesn't solve the problem. I suspect Apple, if it had its way, would have been able to do a global agreement just like they did for MLS. Serge? One thing uh, Alex touched on is the uh, PVR capability of the YouTube TV. Yeah, I I know it's not a question, but I, I was surprised when my TV provider said that they have a Google uh, partnership, and now our PVR are able to record 10 things that the same time the previous limit was two uh two channel at the same time so i don't know if the in the back end if they share the youtube tv technology but i was surprised to see that the google partnership bring us uh, a little bit more capability harshid one thing that i wanted to focus on is whenever they do let's say part with the DVR, as as you said, yeah, that is one thing I was thinking of. But I would think that if they did merge and if Apple would have grabbed it, I think they would have had FTC issues as well with a little bit of pushback since MLS was just achieved. So um, the other uh, thing that uh, Courtney had mentioned with the uh, regionals and blackouts and stuff, it already kind of adds to that process of... Uh, letting you watch in specific cities or what content so i have a buddy that lives in new york but he used to live out here and since he changed his zip code he can't get the news out here but uh he could at least uh get content that's relevant to his location so i wonder if they just followed the same uh, format of what media is getting processed or pushed through um unless if they own it then they could 
achieve with the technological side as uh, I was wanting to bring up the DVR aspect of it, because that's one difference in between what DirecTV had, had to offer. Surely they had a system like that, but then it's working through satellite and everything else. So, you know, the the, the delivery and the technological advancements I think YouTube offer has to offer here is a little bit better. And hopefully pricing doesn't kill uh, the whole process, because when YouTube went up and offered 4K, the pricing went up to, I think, $80 plus tax and that was almost like a $90, $100 price tag and you only had a couple channels that did 4K so we just want to make sure that the pricing package also is a good delivery to the customer. Alex, you want to wrap it up for us? Yeah, and my understanding is is that the um, the, the, the it, all of this is metadata for recording so the, the best part about YouTube is that it doesn't need to uh, actually stored on a drive. DirecTV does it on a drive, <laughs> but, but YouTube just needs in and out points. <laughs> so um, the last thing I'd say is that uh, um, I would plan to be in after hours at 9 a.m. on Tuesday. That's, that's all I can say. This is yeah, what is known in the industry as dramatic foreshadowing. 9 a.m. Tuesday. Be, good time be, be here or be square. No, uh, you say something, Courtney? What were you going to say, Courtney? <laughs> yeah, sorry. I couldn't raise my hand. But they, uh, uh, according to uh, reports, is it will be NFL uh, Sunday ticket will be an add-on pricing so it won't be mm-hmm. on the regular pricing of youtube tv it'll be an add-on package that you can add and yep. they claim to also carry it as a, a standalone package that you can subscribe to as well without subscribing to youtube tv so it will be available for non-subscribers to youtube great. tv as well yeah but okay you can subscribe to youtube tv because it's the best <laughs> got about eight minutes left before we hit the top of the hour so let's dive into the next question and it's coming in for me. Netflix just announced a $905 million plan for a production studio at a former military base in New Jersey. What do you think the other big studios might do in response? Start with Courtney. Uh, not much. They already have studios in New York. Uh, Netflix did this to to have a separate coast for production studios because a lot of actors live, live and want to work in the New York area. So I think it's a wise move. Uh, there's a lot of studio space available for rent in New York. Uh, so I think it's it's a smart move. Netflix has bought up a lot of stages here in Hollywood. So they have plenty of production facilities available on the West Coast. And this kind of helps them on the East Coast. Alex? Yeah, in, in many of the states that they have incentives, they have studios. <laughs> so so they, Netflix has built a lot of studios. Uh, military bases tend to be really good because they have a lot of infrastructure. There's a lot of power. There's a lot of things that will hold a lot of weight. Um, so those are all things that are great for studios. Uh, Sky Gleason. Atlanta, Tyler Perry did this exact same thing. He got a better deal on the, the military base he bought for 20, well, about 23 to 30 million. But yes, that many studios. And again, in the Alex's point of tax incentives is what the producers are looking for is who's going to pay me to bring my production to your, your location. Mitch. You know what they say, if you want to make a million dollars in the studio business, spend $905 million. <laughs> you go. Next question. Javier Alfaro from Mexico City asks, I just saw Avatar in 3D IMAX, and it is the most stunning movie I've seen in a very, very long time. Should we do a second hour discussing the new tech, cameras, and workflows developed by Cameron for this? Alex. Hundred uh, percent. We should absolutely do it. I think that we just have to wait and wait a couple weeks to let everybody see it, and then we'll tell everybody that there's going to be some spoilers, and they can decide whether they want to watch it or not. Um, but but I think and maybe in not next week or the 
week after the week after that <laughs> might be a good one for us to break it down. But I give everybody a little bit of time to be able to get just for me, it's just getting the right seat. There's like five seats in an IMAX and four or five seats in a Dolby Vision or Dolby Cinema that I'm willing to sit in. Which, so I have which to, ones? Which ones? Since we want to go do, do that. Uh, the, the IMAX one depends because there's a couple different designs of the IMAX theaters. The digital, the Dolby digital one in Moscone, it's D8, 9, 10, and 11. <laughs> those, are, those are the ones that, that you sit in. Um, and if, those are the only ones I sit in. <laughs> so like my, when we go, that's that's it. They're right down. The, you would think it, when you look at the map, you'll think it's D9, 10, 11, um, 12. It's it's offset by one when you actually get to the theater. That's the secret for four people. Just in case Ooh, There you go. Next question. Next question in from Douglas Carmichael. If Microsoft did purchase a content distribution platform like Netflix, could you see them improving Windows to make it a stronger platform for content creation? Built-in low latency ASIO drivers, loopback, hijack-like capability in the OS, etc. And Nigel, start us off here, Nigel. That might be the thing that drives in there. My sense for Microsoft is they are focused on the enterprise, they are focused on the cloud, they are focused on the large-scale uh, commercial solutions. Microsoft's a very big, very complicated business. My guess somewhere, somewhere in Microsoft research, they've got this. The question is not whether they do it, it's whether they commercialize it. And I think they're probably not focused. Now, if they were to buy Netscape and Netflix or someone, um, you know, who knows, that might be a thing that drives them there. But um, unless they do, I don't see them prioritizing it. It would surprise me if they bought Netscape. Uh, Serge Blondin. I'm, I'm sorry, but I don't think it's something that Microsoft will release anytime soon. I think uh, not that they are happy that the market for these kind of capability are going to the macOS, but I think I don't see them uh, prioritizing that versus all the business that are using Microsoft for day-to-day -day work, and they don't need that kind of uh, productivity. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, asked, what is the proper use and handling of HDR on the Insta360 Link camera? If anyone in the panel has one, could they switch it on for a moment? Alex? I, don't, I, I can't switch it on right now. I've played with it a little bit. It's limited to 1080p when you do it, so you can't do 4K, and you'll have a, you know, it's, it changes the way it, it operates there. Um, but it, um, and I didn't really find it to be that dramatic as far as the change goes, but I think where you're going to see it, it's not really doing HDR, it's doing tone mapping. So it's, it is um, basically underexposing some of the pixels so that it can grab onto highlights and then reinsert them back in and then doing tone mapping across that. I don't, I think in general, you'd probably not use it, um, but but it's kind of a cool feature. And, you know, we can test it further. I tested a little bit right when I got it, and I was like, okay, well, it's, it's fine. <laughs> like it's like, and, it, and it seems to limit the camera a little bit when you do it. Um, so I wasn't sure that the trade-off was worth it. All right, there you go. Uh, last question for the pre-show or the first hour show. Douglas Carmichael asking, the marketing for the One Button Studio Plus and Pro Kits there's a link to it. Mention a balanced audio signal path as a selling point. Considering OBS is targeted to non-technical audiences, why would they mention it? Alex. I'll let Courtney run with this one. Okay, Courtney, take it away. Well, I, I, I thought somebody who looked at it more, but it's I guess it's a combination of hardware and software. And once audio is inside your computer, it's not balanced. So <laughs> I don't know what they're talking about if it's a software device. Uh, balanced outside the device, if it has uh, balanced inputs and outputs, it reduces noise, obviously, on inputs and cables that are run over long distances. But once it's inside the uh, computer, 
audio is audio. Well, as I understand it as well, the one button studio is marketed into a lot of educational institutions and things like that. So if you have people who understand balanced versus unbalanced audio, they might just be expecting that the fact that it'll have XLR connections or at least a way to keep audio balanced uh, in its ecosystem might be a selling point that they just wanted to make sure that it had on the feature list. Um, you know, things are changing all the time. I, I, I was late to a lot of the changes in digital audio versus analog because my whole career was analog before the big changeover. And you have to do a little new thinking as things evolve. Uh, Courtney? Yeah. And having looked at it now that I see that it's a, it's a hardware device uh, that looks like kind of a little rolling around uh, refrigerator with a couple of screens on top of it. Uh, so I guess it does have, uh, you know, uh, balanced audio inputs. So that's good. But um it's it seems to be something that wouldn't ship very easily. So, a one button studio, but uh, once it's there and installed, uh, I wouldn't want to ship it anywhere. It looks awfully big. Yeah, and it just opens it up to the whole ecosystem of professional audio, which is a huge deal out there. I mean, all the wireless units uh, have pigtails that you can use with XLR. So I can see them wanting to be players in that area. Sky had another thought. Yes, Guy Cochran, I believe, is a dealer. So when you see him next, bring that question back. There you go. All right. We've managed to make it to the top of the hour or at least a few seconds away. There we go. We just hit the top of the hour. So it is time to turn our attention to our panel discussion for today. We're going to be discussing a little bit this idea of prosumer versus pro. And I think for a long time, those of us who have worked in the industry, there was a huge gulf between the capabilities of what I thought of as camcorder kind of production and professional production, which was done with big shoulder mounted cameras. Boy, have things changed over the course of the last five or 10 years or 15 years. Um, even some of the smaller things that one might have thought of in terms of the form factor of a consumer thing can be high performing in terms of the ability to generate and capture signals, whether that's video signals or audio signals, we're seeing things that are far less expensive being used in situations where they might not have been before. So we wanted to have a discussion today. What are the differences? If you're just starting out and your funds are limited, what are the advantages of having access to this less expensive, but still very capable equipment? Probably more capable now at that low price range than it's ever been before. And at what point is it important for you to understand that true professional equipment has aspects of it that make it a very, very viable investment, particularly if you're starting to make your living off of this and you need the dependability and the capabilities that real professional equipment uh, brings to you. So we're going to have just a, a round robin discussion here. We've got a few hands raised, so we're going to talk to everybody and then we'll go into more details about uh, your questions. So if you have questions about the type of equipment that can live in the kind of gray zone between that and how you use it. We'd love to hear them, but let's start with Alex. Alex, what are your thoughts? Yeah. When you pay for something professional, I think a lot of times what you're paying for is obviously reliability, um, sometimes quality, but a lot of the quality now, you, the raw quality is capable. A lot of cameras are capable of that now or, or, or equipment. Um, but the, how do you get to it? So the interface, the scalability, the flexibility, the reliability, those are all things that you start to pay for. You know, you pay extra for so that you have uh, dials where they need to be and not more dials than you need. And then you have you have um, 
because there's a lot of what we see is things get exposed to us so that we can, as a professional, we have more control. Um, it's more flexible, more control. You know, we have more control over what we're doing. Um, it is is going to do something more predictable. Um, those are the kind of things that we look for. Um, there is, it's never been better a better time to do this um, than than now. I will say, um, it is a it's an incredible. Um, uh, you know, there's an incredible opportunity right now to build anything and you can, the quality that you can get with a $1,500 camera, $2,000 camera is in the prosumer world, uh, is what we're using here. A lot of us are using them as web cameras. Um, and they would be considered prosumer except for the fact that you could absolutely shoot something that would be indistinguishable from what people would consider professional. Um, but you know, some of the form factors, what they fit on, how they work, interfaces, those are the things that you start to pay extra for. Mitchell. I think Alex said it very well there. I think it's uh, it's how you get there. It's uh, the the prosumer pro in today's world. Um, the the final results are generally the same. It's just how you got there uh, that makes the difference. Uh, not too long ago, it used to take millions of dollars, thousands of square feet, and hundreds of people to do what we do today. And now it can be done on a laptop uh, sitting in your garage. It's a pretty amazing change over that course of time, Sky. Well, in Los Angeles, the, the question is, which Starbucks were you going to be editing out of that week? Because that was became you're 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 you constantly getting your coffee. But to the question that I wanted to bring up was an acquaintance of mine at, at Dolby. They said they were putting in thousands of theaters in China and they were starting at 48 frames a second and going up because that was the capability of the technology of the day. So I guess in this conversation is what does the consumer want and what is their expectation? So that's, I, I know it's, it's philosophical and that's on Sunday, but what is, well, who's going to pay me to, uh, to buy this piece of equipment and what do they want? And Courtney. In the past, the, uh, the gap between uh, consumer equipment and professional equipment was pretty broad. You know, if you wanted to shoot a professional looking film, you had to get a 35 millimeter film camera or, or at least a 16 millimeter film camera. You had to pay for stock and processing. You had to have an editing system, editing system. You could use rewinds, but you know, most pros to, to generate a, a, a competent film, you'd need a horizontal editing table. Those are several hundred thousand dollars. And uh, the movement to digital cameras and uh, editing, electronic editing, has really moved the consumer area and the professional area toward a central, uh, you know, overlapping space, which is now called prosumer. And I think you can get the same kind of quality out of prosumer equipment, uh, whether or not it will last. I mean, quality image, the image output and the uh, results from using the prosumer equipment can be just as good, if not un, unmistakable, for the professionally produced equipment, uh, you know, uh, media produced with professional equipment. The difference is, as Alex said, the reliability, the interchangeability, the versatility. The professional equipment will have a more variety of support systems for it, more lenses, uh, you know, the ability to be controlled by multiple people, whereas the prosumer equipment is designed to be, you know, push one button and everything's automated. Nigel. So I, I, I think that was all good good input. My my one thought for you is if you're gonna put the pro, you're gonna be a professional. If you're gonna be a professional, 
you're going to charge. If you're going to charge, you're going to build a business case. If you're going to build a business case, you better have a business model. And so I think the biggest difference to me, at least, and, you know, when I look at stuff, I'm not buying it for professional use. I'm buying it for semi-professional or fun use. And the thing that flips me from one to the other is, is is that something I can afford to do out of discretionary income? Or is that something that if I make that next step, I would actually have to earn the money to pay for it? And that to me is is the big jump. And now, if you are a billionaire and everything is, you know, consumer to you. But for the rest of us, I think the big difference is if it's professional, you're going to try and earn money from it. Makes sense. Mitchell? There's some things in the pro versus uh, uh, cons- prosumer, sorry, um, world that have not changed. Uh, they still have a big gulf between them. One of them is lenses. Lenses still cost a lot of money. Uh, you can't compare a uh, an add-on lens that comes with your camera with a uh, a set of Cook Primes that costs two hundred fifty thousand dollars, and that's not going to change. Not likely to change because the processes it takes to make them uh, are still the same. There may be other things that we use in a day-to-day uh, production life that that also are unaffected by the pro prosumer uh, debate. And Alex. And it's something that Nigel t- uh, st- you know, um, touched on that I think is important to remember is is the, the when you start buying bigger pieces of equipment, you can charge more for it. <laughs> like, you know, and that's the thing that if you show up at an event with, you know, things that you kind of cobble together, will the end product look the same? Maybe. But will people make decisions about what you can and can't do? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and now a, a consumer may not be able to do that. But a professional will look at you kind of pulling this weird stuff together and making it all work. And and it and it just limits where you can go with it. So sometimes, you know, you uh, we definitely were able to command, you know, more because we come in with, you know, gear, you know, that 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 is and it does look better and it is easier to run, but it also is brings up the level of what you can do. And again, to get back to flexibility, there's a lot of things that we can do quickly that would take someone who brought in something they kind of cobbled together. There's a lot of times where you have to say, no, I can't do that. Or this, this system won't go there. If it, it, it can solve the thing that they came to do, a lot of times we have to solve three other things that, that, the, that the client or the situation hasn't, didn't, didn't show until we got there. And that's where the professional equipment giving you that headroom gives you that opportunity. Mitchell? Uh, to a degree, I'm going to have to disagree with the gentleman from Novato, California. Uh, uh, in this part of the world, at least in the smaller markets, uh, just good enough uh, or that that can keep you. In other words, there are people shooting what we used to be able to shoot with a crew and a camera and get paid for it. They're shooting with their uh, their iPhone 14s and other things, and they don't really care what equipment they use to get the job as long as the final product um, is there. So that's a that's an interesting distinction because I I have to I can I can only charge less for what I used to do where I charged more and the concept of the cost of the equipment doesn't really play into the equation as much because the people making the decisions about who uses what are the people in the accounting departments. I think it depends on the size of the client. <laughs> it so, does. And it depends on the kind big, of... I got some pretty big clients here in and town and I'm telling you. And their film teams and, and, what the, and how, and how uh, savvy their film teams are. You know, like some, a lot of clients have some pretty savvy film teams and they'll, and they'll make a bunch of decisions really, really fast. As soon as they see you and you, and you start lining up, they'll be like, hmm. And then what happens is it creates a spin. I just know that I, I thought, I definitely thought the same way that Mitchell thought for a long time. And I lost work to people charging three times as much as me because they had shinier things. And so I, I learned from the experience. 
So that may be, there are three things that I wanted to bring up, three words just to kind of spark some of the discussion. And those three words are utility. What does the thing do? Durability. How long can you expect the thing to last? And the other one that I found was really important as I was starting out my business and moving up through the levels was repairability. If something goes wrong with something, is there anything I can do about that before the next shoot and other than replace it? And we are in kind of a disposable thing. We've laughed about the fact that that sometimes some people take some crews in some situations take the the aspirational equipment that I was trying to get to, and they consider that to be disposable. And they're happy to make that XL1 a crash cam, even though a lot of my coworkers in the at the beginning levels we're thinking i just i'd love to be able to get one of those cameras so everything is a little bit different utility it is going to make a difference like if you need to do a slow creep in your iphone is not going to be a very good tool for that it doesn't have that kind of zoom lens capability and you don't have control over it now if you can shoot all static shots you may get a perfectly good program are you going to notice the fact that it doesn't do that function well? It depends on your level as an operator. Uh, in terms of durability, I can't tell you. You know, it, nothing that I started out my first four years with did lasted any longer than that. It all ended up in the dust heap. My first lighting uh, kit was a Smith Victor. It came in a cardboard box. Not only did the box itself fall apart over my first year and a half, but each of the lights it went from being useful to, oh my gosh, I try to lock the light in this position and it's going to fall down because it was not designed well. You know, I eventually bit the bullet and I spent, I think, six or $700, which back then was a lot of money on an airy kit. And all of those things just disappeared for me. You got on set and you knew that when you plug this device in and turned it on, it was going to function. And if anything went bad, like a burn bulb, there was a way to get that bulb out of there and put a new one in really quickly and get into production again in 10 minutes and not keep everybody who was on my set waiting for it. So those are the intangibles about that. And the final thing, repairability. In the early days, it was so critical to have a dealer behind you so that if your camera had a problem, you could call your rental house or something. I'm in a crisis. Can you get one of these cameras to me as fast as you can. And sure enough, in 15 or 20 minutes, somebody would show up in a car and just hand me another camera. Why? The relationship with that shop and the the fact that they would take something that was broken from me and get it fixed and get it back to me because they were making enough money off of me as a producer to want to take care of my needs. Those things are all critically important as you move up the process. Alex, you had thoughts? Yeah. And, and the other thing is, is that you do want to not have to feel like you have to get all the nicest things all the time either. You know, I make a lot of quality decisions based on what I'm doing, you know, so I, you know, the, the C stands that I use in this room to make my little tent are newer, <laughs> newer C stands because they're less expensive. Uh, I got them on sale and everything else. What I use typically in a production are Avengers and Matthews. And I absolutely can tell the difference. Like, you know, like, like I, it seems very simple between the two C stands. These ones never need to do anything. They go up and they come down about once every three months. So I don't need them to do anything else. And I, and I make a cost choice to do that um, in a studio where I have to use them all the time and I need them to last for the next couple of years. You know, then I'm going to make a different decision, you know, and I think that those are the things that that you have to do to, you know, you don't have to buy the nicest thing for everything. But, you know, it's one of those things that you do want to what we want to be careful of. And what I was very arrogant about when I got started was 
I'd be like, well, you know, like <laughs> I just remember having this conversation with someone about whether they're going to use Grass Valley cameras or my XL ones or XL threes. And I was, you know, at the time I was like, well, they're all HD. And, and they, and, and, and I realized how silly that sounds now to me. Like, you know, like it was like it, it, um, I was like, you're not gonna be able to, the viewer's not gonna be able to tell the difference. And now after working with big cameras for a long time, you know, the, the words that came out of my mouth, you know, 15 years ago, um, don't taste as good <laughs> so, so, as, as they did then. And so you want to be very careful of overselling the hardware that you have and understanding where it sits in the food chain. You know, I am, I do the vast majority of my production on black magic ursas, but there are times when I'm going to rent an airy, you know, to, to do those things. And I'm not, and I, and I don't claim that they are interchangeable. I think that the, the black magic is an incredible value, uh, camera. It does a lot of things. The airy doesn't do like higher frame rate and a lot of other things that I really enjoy. And it's something that I can buy and own and I'm, I'm very happy with it. And I've done a lot of great work on the black magics, but I still think the color science and the, um, workability of the areas still better sky when we started mad in the kitchen i realized i was used to the the heavy duty professional equipment but then the newer technologies came in you know buying three light panels that originally when light panels came out what they were 10 grand each and i got a set of three for what 250 bucks including stands but then i realized yeah these may only have like a one or two use case ability if you don't treat them very well and what really proved that was when i started seeing the the my gaff friends come in and just start throwing stuff around i'm going yeah this is not the equipment to do that with you you want to be a little more gentle with this as you say bill disposable equipment and i also remember when eng cameras were were eighty thousand dollars minimum and then then the three thousand dollar little hvx 2000s showed up and they were buying them for a weekend and as you say the crash cam but then when I got a hold of it, I still delicately used it for the next 10 years. Alex, you want to finish things up before we go to our first question? Yeah. When you use prosumer camera, what we call it is soft hands, which means that the last inch before you put anything down, you just slow down, <laughs> a little ease out. You know, you go down and you just set it down carefully. Um, what, you know, like, you know, the last inch of that, of that thing, you just go, okay, we're going to not. And, and I would, you would hear us say it all the time in the warehouse. Like, just don't, don't just drop my, and per your right sky that production people will drop stuff down all the time because they're used to rentals and they don't care. And, and they don't, you know, it's not their equipment. And it's very common to see people bang things around um, just because they're not they're not thoughtful about it. And any, if you're an owner, at one point I had about a million and a half dollars worth of hardware. If you're the owner in the warehouse, you're you're pretty edgy about how the stuff is handled. And um, and I think that with prosumer equipment, you're absolutely right that you have to be a lot more careful about your equipment than you are with professional. But you really should do it for everything um, and treat it like it it is thousands of dollars as opposed to that. But I think that. Um, the other thing though, is that you can, when you know what you're getting and you know what you can and can't do with it, you can scale up a lot more. So for instance, you know, someone might go out and get a, um, uh, you know, someone might go out and buy a really expensive switcher. And what I, what I look at is what am I going to use this for? And I could buy two constellations for one of those, some other switcher, you know, and now I have a primary and a backup, or I have a first use and second use. I, I can cover two different rooms in the same kit, you know, all of those things. And so, you know, I had at one point in time, I would consider the, the, at one point in time I had over 30 switchers and I could never afford to do that 
with, uh, and we would just throw switchers at the problems. <laughs> like, we were, oh, we'll just put eight switchers in here because we can, you know, and, you know, and so we would, um, and it would just, we would create very complex things that you couldn't com- do in a professional, like not professional, but a more expensive. I had a Grass Valley switcher. I couldn't do what I was doing with eight ATEMs, you know, and so, and so those are things that, you know, and so I think that you can really create some pretty, uh, novel things as well. So we have to remember the prosumer oftentimes gives us the opportunity to scale up and do things that we couldn't do with the professional equipment as well. All right, let's get to our questions this morning. Uh, go ahead, Mitch. First in from Sky Gleason in Seattle, Washington, and right here on our panel, can we start the conversation with definitions of professional and consumer? And we have a few people who have decided to weigh in. Mitch, you started off. I'll start it off. It's going to be controversial, but here we go. Um, I think this whole thing is a continuum. And if you apply it to cameras, this is a prosumer camera. This is a Sony ZV-E10. Uh, that's the bottom end of the single line that uh, the Sony has. The camera that I'm using up here is an FX3. That's tickling the, uh, the bottom of uh, professional, but it's still basically a prosumer camera. If I'm going out to shoot something, I'm going to grab a uh, Venice, which is a $100,000 camera, and it's going to look great, and it's going to do the job. But I would never, ever, ever take this out on a shoot and shoot a client. It's not going to happen. I'm sorry. I hate to mess up the uh, the, the Mac fans out there. Sky? Well, we, we have kind of already had this conversation in the in the previous intro to this, but I also throw in two other words and it's, again, uh, income, ROI versus a hobby. And Nigel kind of pointed some of that out is in this equipment, just because you can doesn't mean you should, but it's possible. And that's the confusing part and why we're having this conversation. Courtney? Yeah, durability uh, plays into this greatly. And consumer equipment is not designed to work more than a year or two because they want to sell you the next version, you know, next year's model. Uh, Professional equipment can last for a decade or more. And it's because it's made out of metal. It's got good support behind it. They uh, upgrade the firmware these days. Uh, It has upgradable firmware. It has uh, upgradable parts. You can add on new parts. You can expand it. you know, it's designed to be uh, put into a rental situation. It may be very expensive, but professional equipment then can be rented. I wouldn't put any piece of consumer equipment into a rental situation where you hand it out to any old Joe Blow bozo who's going to use it. Uh, you don't know how he's going to throw it around in the truck, and it's not going to come back working. So uh, I think there's a big divide between consumer and professional in that respect. Peter Sargent. I'll go back to what Nigel was talking about earlier. I mean, for some of us, it's a bit of a hobby, actually. And, and, and yeah, I use it in a in a in a very visible hobby with my with my volunteer work. But it's a hobby, therefore, it's what I can afford, not what I can recover. Right, John and and, 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 and and frankly, it's a it's a and to going back to Mitch's point, it's a continuum. But the continuum is over time. I mean, what is today's uh, professional camera, the feature function will slowly work its way down into prosumer and then into consumer. I only look at my Sony AX100 in front of me, which was the top of the line consumer camera when I bought it eight years ago. And the only difference between it and the next level up camera was mine doesn't have XLR inputs. The next Sony up does have XLR inputs, as an example. John Preto. 
Sony, I think even to this day, made this distinction really clear. And when you look for products on their site, they had the consumer product. The high end of that was the prosumer level. Then they had the industrial product line, and then they had broadcast on top of that. And so uh, the broad the broadcast stuff was all they would be, you know, with the B series and the professional stuff was P and the industrial line. And then the consumer stuff had all kinds of different names on it. But, the, you know, they made that very clear distinction on at least on their website. Nigel. Yeah, the only thing I can add really is that uh, if I'm trying to decide whether I put a product in a consumer or a, a professional category, I think about completely different business models. If I'm going to put something in a professional category, I'm going to have to think about the service model. I'm going to have to think about how I'm going to manage that, whether I can charge for it, what the additional products are. If I'm going to go through a consumer model, I'm probably going to sell it through a retailer. I'm going to have to have that channel. So there's different channels, there's different service, there's different models. And that's why Sony has those two different websites, because it doesn't want you to buy professional products through Best Buy, um, because the model is completely different at their end. And, oh, Sky, you wanted to chip in? Well, and, and just real quick, the, the point of the, the uh, manufacturer doesn't want to have to support it. So at what point do they they want to not have to deal with non-professionals they just want to just keep selling more product at a, at a certain profit margin so for me the difference between professional and consumer comes down to one simple little phrase and that is risk tolerance professionals have very low tolerance for risk if they can manage a piece of risk by upgrading their equipment, they will because they understand intuitively that their business reputation and their ability to continue to grow their business depends on consistent performance over time. Different pieces of equipment have different places in that risk reward matrix. And so uh, uh, you can get perfectly good results out of an iPhone in terms of just grabbing a picture. And I've used iPhone shots in professional work. I was taking on a little more risk. I had to risk understanding that I could not get the same either quality or, um, you know, that, that slow dreamy zoom or something. And I had to analyze that that was okay for what I was doing because the message I needed to get out for the client could be served by the picture from that camera in this situation in what the client had asked me to achieve for them. So I felt the risk was okay in, in shooting on that. There's other circumstances where Alex's point is perfectly well-making. Showing up with an iPhone in a professional shoot situation, somebody's going to ask you, what are you doing? And, you know, you better have an answer. And if you have an answer, you know, look, I've got to get this thing down here and I've got to go from underwater to up. And the best way for me to get this shot really quickly is to have this rig with an iPhone in it. And let's take a look at it. And I've tested it and I've said it's going to be good and rely on me that when I say it's going to be good, it's going to be good. And when they see it afterwards as a cut piece, they go, oh, yeah, that looks great. That's fine. That increases their trust in me that I'm making good decisions for them. And that means I become less a risk. And they were right back to risk management. No matter what you bring to the set, you're constantly battling this idea of, are you a riskier person than your competition? Or are you a safer person than your competition for executing this job for your clients? If you are consistently the safer person, they don't care what you show up with. They just know you're safe. And so risk avoidance, risk tolerance is where I see the break between consumers and pros. 
pros have learned to manage that. Alex, you had some thoughts on this? Yeah. And it's not in production. A lot of times there is a, we, we just talk about this. There's a, when everything works fine, no one cares what you're using. So like when everything is working and you're producing content and everything else, everyone's like, okay, that's great. When something goes wrong, there is this, you know, Chinese fire drill that is who's going to end up on the front of the bus. You know, like someone's going under when it, when things go wrong, somebody's in the corporate environment, somebody's going under, <laughs> like, you know, and somebody's, you know, and, and if you're a, if you are a uh, freelancer or an external uh, person, you are the red shirt, you know, you know, like, and I would tell people in my crews, just remember that in a production, you are the, you're landing as a red shirt, <laughs> you know, like, you know, and so, uh, and, and so you just need to know that you're most likely going to be the one that goes under. And so number one is you wanted to make sure your tools are really reliable. But number two is when you come with things that look weird, that have been cobbled together, that don't look professional, um, you know, like it was hard for us to use black magic cameras until the Ursa came out and still hard when it was really larger. So, but when the Ursa minis came out and then became accepted as a professional d device and we used them as those, it was really easy to use them in lots of things because you started seeing them in more places. But you do have to be aware of what those are because when you when you show up with something, you'll think that, well, I can produce exactly the same content. Number one is you probably can't um, exactly the same. Uh, you probably don't have the same, you know, if you're not able to capture raw, if you're not able to capture a lot of other things, There's those are things make a difference. But remember that when things go wrong, you got to be in a defendable position, you know, of why you chose what you chose. And if you can't defend that position, it just means that you, you know, and the worst part is a lot of times you won't be told. People aren't going to necessarily ask you why are you using that. They'll just make a bunch of decisions on their own, <laughs> you know. And then and they and they put you in a box that says this company does or this person does smaller productions, and then I have another company that will do the larger productions. And the more you can get, it just takes something. It takes how you interact with them, the professionalism that you have when you approach it, the quality of work that you produce, but also the equipment that you use will make a difference in how they view you. Mitch, you want to have a last word here before we go on to the yeah. next question? Thanks, for I appreciate that. It, this is a very interesting part of the conversation because we're also talking about the factors that drive uh, making decisions between professional and consumer gear. Like, I used to be perfectly happy with a uh, Grass 100, you know, next to me when I was editing. But today, all you need is an A10 Mini for, what, 500 bucks? Uh, that doesn't compare price-wise. And the other thing is that, uh, and this kind of uh, falls into what you were talking about, Bill, is that in a company that's making decisions about who they're, let's say, typical corporation, um, it used to be there was a gatekeeper that understood your capabilities, understood the kind of equipment you would bring, the professionalism you bring to the job. Those people are gone. Uh, the people that are making decisions about whether they're going to hire you or not are are basically uh, bean counters in most cases, and they don't necessarily know the difference between a, a professional and a consumer piece of equipment. They only care that you're going to get the job done, and most importantly, like Alex just said, uh, you're not going to get in trouble because you hired those guys, unless you get in trouble. So it's a very, very technical balance that we all work here. Yeah, I think Mitch is exactly right. I had the same experience watching uh, during the post 9-11 era, the, uh, a lot of corporations that I worked for got the middle hollowed out. The people who had expertise in areas were too expensive and they weren't, you know, the people keeping the either typing the things or making the executive decisions. So it is tougher out there to, uh, I think, explain your value in soft terms as opposed to bottom line numbers. It's just a tougher business out there. Let's go to the next question. 
Next question in from Javier Alfrero from Mexico City, Mexico. Since price is not always the definitive answer, costly versus low cost, what are the top features that make you consider gear as pro versus prosumer? Let's give Jesse a shot at here. Jesse, dive in. There are thousands of pieces of gear and infinity use cases, so this answer is going to be a gross oversimplification, but for uh, video chain, uh, global shutter is professional rolling shutter is prosumer and below to me and for audio chain um balanced in balanced out is is necessary for professional mitch yeah jesse's spot on i think that makes a lot of sense bokeh versus non-bokeh um when you're shooting a green screen you need to be able to have uh hopefully a 444 camera um you're not going to get that with a uh, consumer one but in general, I, you know, I don't mind using prosumer gear if it's going to get the job done and has the, the specs I'm looking for. But every piece of equipment has its place, like Jesse would say. Courtney. Uh, wait, if you show up on the set and you pull all your production gear out of your backpack or the, even worse, the uh, pockets on your cargo shorts, uh, then it's uh, consumer gear. If it is made out of metal and is packed in fiberglass and uh, and wood cases, then it's professional. It'll hold up uh, through, it'll take a beating, it'll uh, be able to be thrown on a truck or uh, screwed down to the top of a car and driven at 60 miles an hour and uh, come out working. Uh, whether a camera has a 3 8 inch uh, uh, attachment to the tripod or a quarter inch attachment to the tripod three eighths it's a professional piece of of gear quarter eh, consumer or prosumer so the amount of uh, support gear that will interface with your equipment uh, is crucial um, time code is another thing that you'll find on pro gear that you won't find on consumer gear is time code synchronization external sync in on cameras as well uh, as the ability to uh, mount a variety of lenses on cameras and different support uh, from everything from a long box lens or a super long telephoto or a zoom lens on the front uh, to, um, uh, I guess, you know, mounting uh, transmitters and things like that to, to transmit the signal to monitors and the availability to interface the equipment to a ver for a variety of uh, viewers simultaneously while you're shooting. That's, you know, pro equipment. Alex? I, I think one thing that Courtney touched on is, is is even how you case stuff up. So how it looks when you show up. Um, I, you know, I was took a support role on a pretty large event um, the one year. I uh, was brought in, two different teams brought us together. There was one team that was doing one part and I was doing another part. Um, and, um, uh, that te other team, you know, I came in with, you know, regular gear <laughs> that I would have with Pelican cases and racks and things that needed to be done and tightly wound, you know, wiring and everything else. And they came in with a suitcase, like an old suitcase that they just kind of piled everything in and they didn't know how to do a lot of things there. And the next year I did their job. Like, you know, like, like, you know, like, you know, it was, it was, it was the next, the next year I was, I was, it was, that was my job. And so, um, and you know, while I, uh, so I think that that's, that's a good example of, uh, now I was also very tight in what I did and there, they had some, you know, but again, the, the bottom line was, is it was embarrassing to watch, even watch them do it, you know, and, and so to open their suit, this little suitcase and pull things out and, and I got to that, they just hadn't done enough production to know that that wasn't going to look good where we were doing it. And you just have to be conscious to all those things when you're, you know, so even how you case things up. And I, I have to admit, a couple of years before that, I used a, you know, a catering cart to move all of my gear from 
my office, which was two blocks from Moscone to Moscone to do our little show that, that we were doing there. And, you know, so it's, it's all a progression, but I would save you some of the trouble and just let you know that you do have to have things look like they're, they're like, like you're buttoned up, you know, buttoned up is a big deal. When you talk, when you say you want to be professional, being buttoned up is a piece of that puzzle and how it looks and how it interacts and what you're pulling it out of and everything else. All of that matters. Mitchell. I think Alex is touching on something important because uh, pro versus prosumer also extends into the crew uh, that you bring in. If you bring a crew in that are wearing cutoffs and uh, they're kind of sloppy and their best practices, um, it reflects poorly on the uh, the end result because those are things that the client can spot. If they can spot you know, people that aren't acting correctly, following the chain of command, uh, handling equipment a certain way. Uh, it's it's not just the uh, the gear that you unpack, but it's also the people you bring with you to shoot. I think all these things are critically important. I will say that there is, though, you should never lose track of the fact that there are some intangibles that break these rules. And I guess what I'm thinking is that, you know, do you care what piano Elton John is playing today? At, at some point, would you go to see a hack pianist like me play a Bosendorfer or Elton play a bar piano that was barely in tune? And the answer for me, 100%, is I would go to see him because he has that intangible something. If you are lucky enough to spend enough of your career in this stuff and build a reputation for true excellence, some of these rules start to fall away a little bit and you don't have to keep inside the lines as strictly. Be careful. If if you're thinking you're there and the market doesn't think you're there, you're dead. So, uh, but just understand that your skills, your ability is still going to have the potential to trump what you're showing up with in terms of your cases or whatever, but it's really hard. That's when you've really pushed yourself up to the top of it in some way. And, you know, this guy did this crazy video and it got 9 million views on YouTube and whatever, and he did it on his iPhone. There are going to be those people out there, even though you're spending all this time and all this money shooting as perfectly as you can. There's just that intangible that I don't think you can forget about in this business, the creativity part of it. So let's move on to the next question. Andy Kokendorfer from Vieira, Florida, asked prosumer versus professional gear. Do results matter the most? Courtney's going to start us off here. Courtney? Well, the results matter, but, you know, sometimes the people that are viewing the results have no idea how the film or, or was produced. So they don't know or care whether you used an iPhone or whether you used a, an Aerie Alexa or not, as long as the results look good. So, yeah, you could say that. But the people that are hiring you as a as a production professional may not hire you again if you show up with some consumer gear. So it 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 doesn't necessarily depend on the results doesn't necessarily affect your employment is what I'm saying. The results may affect the producer more than the crew member or the person, you know, that's working as a camera person or sound person, et cetera. Sky? I the the phrase you only get one chance to make a good first impression came to mind because when the DSLRs first came out, a good friend of mine had one, but he said, but I have to kit it out to make it look like a full geared camera because my my client that I walk into would just laugh me off the set if I walked in with the, you know, the original 5D camera or the, D, uh, the little uh, Canon camera. So that's where who's your audience and what you want them to do has a part of this longer term question, because if your audience as a uh, person that's walking onto a set as a hiree, 
your audience is the person right there in front of you. But if you're doing a project on your own, for instance, I used the the uh, DJI uh, drone, but I've also used a Westcam and you know hooked off the front of a helicopter. Now, would I have liked to had that stabilization and with that big giant camera? Of course, didn't have the budget. But my audience in the film for Graham Care that I'm working on, I want the audience to feel moved about this particular scenic scenery thing. And I'm getting 4K images in, in what I can afford. So it's, it's a complicated question. If you're going to be paid to do something, uh, you probably will need to have the accoutrements. But if you're doing a project on your own and you can sell it for something that people want to buy, then maybe the less expensive equipment is, is going to be okay for you. Mitch, here's a valuable lesson that I'll I'll do it very quickly. Um, I was shooting commercials for a friend of mine who owns a large Harley Davidson dealership. Um, they were very involved shoots that involved jibs and moving cameras and Steadicam, and we charged not at all around thirty thousand dollars a pop to do the spot. And one day, my friend came to me and said, "Look, uh, you're my friend, and I don't mind sending you business, but this little operation out of New Jersey uh, that shoots commercials for the local cable operation is able to do that same spot for two grand." And my answer to him was. Can you see the difference in quality from the work they do and what I'm doing for you? And he said, no, I can't. And I said, I guess you've made the decision. And that's the tough part about it is that we live in a world now where it's good enough um, is starting to rule the world and our abilities as professionals. Um, and if you're a cranky older professional like myself, um, I, I insist on doing everything as, as very good as I can, which means using professional gear to accomplish the job. And it's extraordinarily hard for me to dumb it down just because the client might not be thinking the same way. John Preto. I was wondering if uh, Courtney liked my newest professional broadcast uh, microphone here. Hey, good luck. A lot of buttons. Back to pick you up later. I spent a number of buttons. Spent spent at least twenty dollars on this. (laughs) (laughs) Alex. Yeah. What I will say is, in general, there are plenty of clients out there that will pay the right amount of money to get stuff done. And if you're not getting that, you're just not finding them. Um, But but the you know low budget low budget clients you know and low budget projects is where you get started. But once you, you have to find your way to get out of that market because. Uh, it's just, they'll just grind you, grind you into the ground, you know? Like, so it, you know, you have to figure it out of, of how you do it. Either you figure out a model that is just high churn that works for you and, you know, it's going to be easy in and easy out, but, but, you know, there's a place that people start and they they'll take advantage of that for a while. Um, but there are a lot of bigger companies that understand that media matters and they, they pay, they pay enough to make it work. Mitchell. And now you know why I spent a lot of time here, Alex. <laughs> there you go. Sky. Well, I had a client want a 3D rendered um, realistic visual image. We quoted him three grand. He came back with a yes, a 2D image and on a on a you know a flash drive or something like that. And we said, but that's not what you asked for. He said, Yeah, but this commercial is only going to be on for one weekend to promote one thing. So we couldn't argue against him spending that much money on something that didn't have a lifespan of, of more than, you know, 20 seconds. So that's where listening to your client, what is their need is, is sometimes tricky. And you're right. Maybe they only need a, you know, a two dimensional item to get that information out there to their client. Let's move to the next question. 
And it's from James Fosling in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Are there requirements prosumer equipment doesn't meet or could prosumer just mean pro equipment that other consumers might be interested in? Well, we've talked a little bit about some of the things that are kind of the hidden things behind truly professional equipment. Often you have a dealer network that supports them. Uh, There's a lot more information out there. Um, You know, you don't have to, this isn't working today. I better go buy a new one in that case. Courtney, you had some thoughts here? Uh, yeah, prosumer equipment. There's there's one big gulf between prosumer and pro equipment is in uh, file formats and interchangeability, and uh, their professional file formats that the professional file uh, equipment uses, and there are consumer file formats that consumer uh, equipment uses, and there's not a whole lot of overlap between those two. So uh, that's one thing that you find uh, the difference between the pro and prosumer. Uh, that makes a difference. It makes a difference in post-production if you're producing stuff, uh, whether or not the sound is recorded separately. Dual system, you have a separate sound mixer, has multiple inputs. The sound mixer has, you know, eight tracks of of recording as, as opposed to just two. And uh, usually professional cameras don't record sound in the camera itself. So time code and as well as the file formats themselves uh, are professional file formats that guarantee interchangeability throughout the rest of the production. You know, so in post-production, you don't run into weird file formats that won't translate or color space that's not common to your end product or can't be color corrected in your current timeline so on. Yeah, Courtney actually touches on a good thing, which is the evolution of the industry underneath you and that is happening faster than i've ever seen it before um you know you're thinking that you're at this level and you're going to stay there well the young people coming up under you may not have an investment the same level that you do and they may have stuff that's good enough to take some classes of clients away from you so is your business able to move to the next level of clients to protect your profit margin if on the top end and i've seen this happen in my industry uh in my career uh the the companies that were doing things at a particular strata of corporate production uh something might happen 911 happened and you know a lot of the corporate work went away for a while or some companies got more corporate work because companies were doing less traveling big road shows and they wanted to send out videos the the industry is always kind of altering beneath your feet when you're in this business just something you have to understand so you have to look ahead and say are there big changes that are coming you know at some point you got to get rid of all the OVHS duplicators uh, to use an ancient design and you know you got to move to DVDs and now you got to move to file based and now you have to move to in the cloud and if you're not ahead of this if you're not thinking about this and if you're not jettisoning some of the workflows and equipment and processes that you had that worked five years ago for the ones that are coming up that are going to be important now you risk having your business become unstable because you can't meet the needs of what the market is changing towards. So that's just another thing you have to be thinking about while this is going on. Um, Let's move to the next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, I remember a story of a sound company losing a corporate event contract when the owner mentioned the word PV. Have you ever had issues with brand perception that influenced the relationship with the client? Sky? I I would like to say that's not a, a reality, but and it, it and it, that that it's unfair. But when I went to get a, a brain scan, I didn't ask if it was a GE, you know, MRI. I didn't care. And when I buy 
you know, work from a, a laborer, I don't ask what the hammer is. But yes, I did lose work to a product called Flame because Discreet had done a lot of promotions of that to the Hollywood and to the high-end consumer market, even though I had a, a product which I believed could create what they wanted. But when the production assistant called and says, do you have a flame? And we says, no, we have an avid DS. And they go, well, that's not what my producer said I was supposed to be after. And it's like, but we can give you what you need. Why do you care about the name of the product? He says, because it's my job to do what my producer wants. And Mitchell? Uh, by the way, Douglas, PV is a fine brand and they make a lot of good stuff. So I wouldn't uh, turn my nose up to it. Um, I had this uh, in the early days of the Avid battles uh, when Avid was the uh, the de facto standard out there. And um, it certainly had a name that had a lot of cachet. Um, I went with a thing called Media 100, which is sort of a poor man's Avid. But it was online quality and it was much less expensive that would work on easy gear, uh, stuff that you could assemble yourself, not approved by Avid. And I had a lot of clients say, hey, if you're not editing on Avid, um, you can't get the job. But the Media 100 would do just as well. It was fine. It was the end results that mattered to me. Alex. Yeah, you, you, you fight this all the time. <laughs> you know, so so and and we got to ride through it um, because we jumped on Black Magic hardware pretty early on when it was considered not professional, um, and so we were constantly arguing for and we had to you know but we were coming in under but under budget of other people who were using more expensive equipment and more expensive staff, and so we were able to do that. Um, and we but like Black Magic is a great example. In 2010, when we were using Black Magic, we were considered like the little whatever by the by 2020 it's a different different entirely different story of how it's viewed and so that brand um, recognition can change over time um, but you know again if you're working with it's especially a team that does a lot of production um, you can you'll often uh, um, have people make qualitative decisions about what you're able to do and what you can do by the brand that you that you come in with I mean like little things like if you bring a sound devices, recorder to an event or a zoom recorder to an event people who understand audio will make very they'll they'll if you bring a zoom recorder they'll go oh they're just getting started (laughs) like you know like like, you know like eventually they'll find their way to sound devices and if you bring and if you bring you know like those are the kind of things that they're just going to make a decision and they're going to make a decision where you fit in the food chain by the equipment that you bring it doesn't mean that you should overbuy everything you can't buy things that you can't afford to pay for but you do have to know that these things are there. I had um, I had a discussion with uh, Elemental one time. <laughs> Elemental have these green uh, faces on the front, and they have these little lights behind them. And they spent a lot of time thinking about these, and they, those would sit there, and they're the only thing in my rack, in my encoding rack, that would glow. And there's a little green, these two little green glows, or four, eight, or whatever it was. And they they were saying, do you think those are worth doing? And I was like, absolutely, 100%. And I, and I said, we calculated it. We actually sat around drinking beer one time and calculated all the jobs we got from people ask, walking up and asking, what are those green? What are those, right? What are What is that thing that's green? And we would describe it to them. $2.2 million is what we made over five years uh, just from that, just, just because they opened up a conversation. And then what I did, of course, is destroyed software encoders. Like, you know, just like you know, I just said, like, if you want, you know, and I'd started there, I'd started with all these other things, but it allowed me to have a conversation about how if you really want your project to work, you're going to use hardware, software defined hardware encoders. You're not going to use hardware, hardware encoders because they're not flexible enough. You're not going to use 
OBS or 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 Wirecast or anything else because those aren't you know you you're going to have frame drops you're going to have all the and I and I and I sewed all of the stuff into a into a nice smooth conversation but that professional equipment those really expensive hardware and the little lights and they would have never asked me if I didn't have the little lights on the front so you just have to understand that a lot of that stuff does matter um, because then they'll go search Elemental and they'll see that everybody uses them and they'll you know like it was it was all a thing but all of that stuff matters like and people will tell you that it doesn't and and it, definitely makes a difference when you're having conversations with folks. We're in our last 10 minutes. I have about 10 questions ahead of us. So we're going to zoom along here. So uh, let's go to the next question. Zooming away with Jeffrey Powers in Madison, Wisconsin, asking, is there a company's product where you would be as comfortable with a prosumer model as much as pro gear? For example, Canon, Sony, and newer. Jesse. Uh, Black Magic has really mastered the art of creating really easy points of entry and then nudging you up to the next thing as you start to understand what you're doing with your entry level gear. It's not comfortable. It's always joyful when we get up to that next tier on Black Magic's chain. Uh, Mitchell. I'll admit I'm a Sony fanboy and I would be just as happy with my FX3, which I'm using right here, uh, with an FX6. In fact, I think I could cut between them and they would be pretty darn close. Sky Gleason. Panasonic because they they bring some of that high end knowledge down to their prosumer level stuff and then yeah but it, it's all a gateway drug they're all all consumer items that they want to get you to get to the next level and get to the next thing and next year they will have something else for you to buy. I always think it's not the equipment it's what you know how to do. If you gave me a bunch of newer lights and add me asked me to light a scene I could probably light it pretty darn well and you know I would help that I had my regular kit bag with diffusion and gels and the rest of that stuff. But, uh, you know, if you know what you're doing, you can get higher level performance out of lesser level gear. If you don't, uh, and, but this is not necessarily the electronic stuff that, that can be a little more, it's sometimes hard to get performance out of something. It just doesn't have the chip. Let's move on to the next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana, asking, this line is significantly blurred with products like Switcher Studio and Mevo cameras. A lot of professionals use these products every day for great productions using iPhones and iPads. What does this mean for the future of pro equipment? I don't think it means a ton because here's the thing. I have used equipment like that and I've had success with it, but then I realize over the course of time that it is limiting me. The, the features that were built into that product line, the fact that I, can, I can't do zooms as well or I can't move the camera as well as I might like to means that I'm going to go for simpler shots. Now, can that be effective in the right kind of program? Absolutely. Can you get a good-looking program out of it? Absolutely. But as you get more uh, skill with these things and you think, you know, this shot would really be helped by a nice drift right and I should probably lay track and put a dolly under this to get the shot that I would really like can you say yes to that or you're just going to go now i'm going to have to do what the camera equipment does for me period uh alex yeah i mean i i think it's while i say a lot of those things matter when you're dealing with certain clients and so on and so forth i pick everything from an iphone or a gopro all the way up to an airy and i make qualitative decisions about what the flexibility is. Like if I'm doing something that I need a lot of flexibility in the camera, I'd rather use a black magic than an Airy because the Airy does what it does. If you're doing 24 frames a second and you want, you know, a certain kind of thing, it works great. As you start to vary from, from that, it starts to be like, oh, I don't, don't want to play here anymore. And so, you know, the flexibility of it, but like, I, again, I talked about, I went from covering events like CES and NAB from big cameras and all kinds of short depth of field and everything else down to an iPhone because it was just like it got 
it was to Bill's point, it was flexible and I could do whatever I needed to do quickly. And I produced a lot more content and it looked great. Sky? Well, and I'm realizing I'm moving a lot of what used to be my heavy equipment over into the disposables part of the, the spreadsheet now because the heavy equipment is no longer the $30,000 camera. It's a $300 camera. And you just build that into the budget and go, yeah, that may not only last, that may only last one show. Courtney? Yeah, there's been a democratization of, of production equipment that's happened over the last few years as everything became digital. Now you can have uh, people that have millions of followers on YouTube produce daily shows for their YouTube channel with just a, you know, a handheld camera that they hold out in front of them as they walk and talk and talk about whatever latest piece of equipment or whatever interesting fact they're going to show you. Uh, in the past, that would take a whole crew of at least three or four people to do a documentary. And nowadays you can do it, you know, in your hand. So it does make a difference, but I don't see it, uh, completely changing the professional field. The professional field is still going to be multiple crew members, each one doing their own job rather than uh, a one person run and gun type production. You know, Alex, YouTube, last quick comment. Excuse works. me. All I'll say is it feels like a lot of those YouTubers are using little things, but a lot of times they have pretty big crews that are helping them at this point. When they grow past a couple million followers, um, you know, a lot of them are shooting with Reds, Aries, um, you know, they, they like to play with those things because they can afford to. And a lot of them have an enormous, I know, I know one YouTuber that has way north of 50 people working for him. <laughs> so, so like, you know, like, so it's, it's a, these, these things are, um, they, they oftentimes make it look like it's just a couple people doing it because they don't want people to feel like it became a big thing, but it's a, it's oftentimes a pretty big crew <laughs> that's, that's the, doing those things. Next question. John uh, Snyder, excuse me, I was asleep at the wheel, uh, from Reno, Nevada, asked, what are the most common issues, frustrations you see people run into when switching from prosumer to pro? Starting with Peter Sargent. Uh, buying, buying it based upon the feature list, not knowing what to do with the features, and not reading the instructions or asking for help. John Preto. I think it's price. I think you look at the prosumer line or one up above on industrial, and then you go to broadcaster pro and the price jumps exponentially. Courtney. Yeah. The pro equipment doesn't do everything that the prosumer equipment did for you. You have to add accessories or people to pull focus or, or, uh, you know, change the lighting, uh, during the shot, et cetera. You know, it's, it's not as uh, versatile as that prosumer equipment was out of the box. I'm tempted to say menu freak out. I went to this menu on my new camera, which is fully professional. It's got 132 entries. I don't know what to do with 80% of them. Uh, things do get more complex as you go into more professional, more manual control. Next question. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas asking, I've had prosumer gear that's tougher than commercial gear like my Sony ZV-1. It's also outlasted all my Canon, Nikon, Panasonic SLRs. Do others have similar experiences with prosumer gear? Mitchell? Oh, yes. Uh, my Sony ZV-E10, which is a cousin to your uh, ZV-1, Paul, I've dropped it three times, and it hasn't broken. Uh, Courtney? Not really. I dropped my Panasonic uh, digital camcorder, that I got HVC-150, and it knocked the back focus out of focus. I took it to Panasonic uh, factory repair, and they said, no, we have to replace the entire uh, image block uh, and it'll cost you more than the camera costs to repair it. So no. 
I will say we've talked about rental houses and things like that. Sometimes they work just fine in your use case at the level you use them. You put them in a rental house and in two weeks they're uh, trashed. So it depends on how you treat things if you own the, own the device. Let's go to the next question. Bob Sturdivant from San Antonio, Texas. Wouldn't it be good plan to purchase a prosumer nowadays since the tech keeps changing faster and it wouldn't cost as much to buy the next version when it becomes available instead of being married to my pro gear? Sky. I look at all of this equipment as um, subscription or, or leasing because all of it's I'm, I'm trying to learn myself. to the question of what does this button do? What feature is that going to give me a a better look, a better concept? So I think the way I read your question is it's similar to any computer now. It's you just go in at at some point that you can afford and find out what you know and what you don't know. To me, the complexity, if you buy it, you're going to learn how to use it. If you're renting it, sometimes you don't get deep into how to use it because you're just renting it. Let's move on to the next question. And it's from Douglas Carmichael asking, Alex, you mentioned production people acting less careful with rented gear. Wouldn't rental houses have clauses in our contracts about intentional damage or loss and the right to bill the renter for it? Jesse, quickly. Intent is very difficult to litigate. Mitchell. Yeah, I agree with uh, Jesse. Uh, they, a lot of times they'll put those little uh, G-Force uh, devices on it to make sure the cases have been thrown around. Alex. Yeah, and it's not something that you—it's leaving a dent or break. I mean, it, it, that's what insurance covers. Like if you're if you're actually doing something that that shows damage, um, the the real problem that comes into it is just rough handling slowly shakes everything out. You know, so it's not it's not something that you see when you set something down hard. It's that if you do that over and over and over again, um, at some point things start to get loose, and and that's what that's the problem um, with with that process. Next question. Next question in from Jesse Kester in Glendale. The differences between consumer and prosumer gear can be technical and nuanced. The difference in price, however, is not. Any words of wisdom on communicating the former to a client who is shocked by the latter? Well, you know, that just depends on your pricing structure and how you're going to communicate to your clients what's required for a budget for a particular shoot. Uh, you know, that's part of your business plan. And you have to understand whichever cl- uh, level of equipment you're investing in, you've got to be able to make a profit on it. If you don't, you're not going to sustain your business going forward. And so your prices have to go up with the quality of the services. It's just a a standard business thing. It's been there forever and it will be there forever. Next question. Next question from L. Wilson Spiro from Berlin. Apple tries to make some pro gear, 2019 Mac Pro, M1, M2 Studio, but doesn't seem to care about problems they cause pro users. T2 chip, USB 2.0, audio interrupt debacle, orange dot madness. Why do you think this is? Think it will change? Why or why not? Got a lot of people who want to weigh in on this, and we are pretty much at the top of the hour now, so let's do it as quickly as we can. Nigel, you'll start. Yeah, pro in this case is a branding and not a philosophy thought. Uh, Mitchell? I agree 100% with what Nigel just said. Courtney? Yeah, Apple throws around superlatives for marketing purposes only. It has nothing to do with the quality of the product. Yeah, and I'll just add that things like the orange dot have other purposes. I know it drives all of us who shoot and use this as a camera and want a clean aperture, drives us crazy, but there's another reason they're doing it. And so sometimes those reasons trump. Yeah, smart reasons. Let's move on to the next question. 
And it's from Douglas Carmichael asking, open source operating systems like Linux and FreeOpenBSD have disrupted the IT industry with pro-level networking capability on generic white box hardware. Have you ever implemented those OSs in your pro-level network infrastructure? You know, to me, I've always been a little wary. I don't have friends who uh, program in Linux, and I don't have uh, the ability to tap into that community. So I always uh, am a little bit hesitant because of my lack of skill set. Uh, I would probably be more interested in those things if I had those skills. Courtney, your thoughts? Uh, in the professional industry, you look at, uh, you know, Pixar, Disney, a lot of the professional 3D animations, you know, a lot of them, almost all of them are running on Linux boxes. Or a whole lot of them are. So, yeah, you do see it a lot uh, around. Peter? I think the thing to remember is all the Linuxes, all the major brands of Linux out there, they're out there. You have the option of buying a support contract. If somebody used to run data centers for a living for commercial customers, we bought a support contract. And therefore, it's no different than Windows or Mac OS from that perspective. It's there. It is professionally supported. Okay, next question. Jesse Mills, San Francisco Bay Area. Control detail and user interfaces differ between these tiers of equipment. It's easier to train people on prosumer gear. So what do folks think about externalized custom controls for higher tier equipment, which would make it more trainable and accessible? Alex. Yeah, we do that a lot. I mean, we we definitely look at at what who's going to use it and how they're going to use it. So, like handing someone a, a Grass Valley switcher doesn't help unless they've spent ten years on a Grass Valley switcher. You know, like so. So you do want to look at, at at what the ramp time is and what is needed for that mission. Mitchell, all Sony menus are garbage. <laughs> Except for the new FR7, the, the 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 little interface now for the FR7 when we saw it there it looked really great. But I was like, wow, that's really good for a Sony Swim. But otherwise, I agree. <laughs> Courtney, uh, yeah, consumer products have more consumer oriented user interfaces. Professional products have less uh, easy to use interfaces. So you'll find that throughout the industry. Yeah, and the number of people who are going to work on things like customized interface is in part determined by the number of units that are out there and the and how popular they are. And, you know, you can come up with some custom stuff. The question is, does the market care? Will you work on it for a while, for a few years, and then it just goes away and all your time uh, is gone because the equipment is gone? This has been a fascinating discussion. Thank you all, one and all. The panelists have done an amazing job today. Our producers, as always, has done a fabulous job of putting these questions in. Um, and everybody on the back end, thank you all so very much for that. Don't forget, tomorrow, uh, focus on Q&A. So we're going to have two hours of question and answer. Saturday, focus on edu evaluating educational software. So that's coming up. Sunday introspection, as always. Uh, and let's see. Uh, I think the discussion in after hours today, something about LIDAR. Nick Justison is going to be there. So check that out for uh, Saturday, the education hour. And I'm just looking through the list to see if there's anything else. I guess that's tomorrow's, it. Thank tomorrow's LIDAR, I think. Uh, tomorrow's LIDAR. Excellent. Yeah. Thank you very much. So that's what's coming up. Thank you for being here today. We appreciate your being here without you, everybody who's watching this. We wouldn't have a reason to do it, and we all love doing it. So thank you very much for your questions, your participation. Thank you to everybody in the back end, and do watch the credits if you can, because there are a lot of people behind the scenes, in fact, even more than are on this credit list who have been contributing to the office hours thing. We'll see you all tomorrow. It's the, the new official tagline, the office hours thing.
best thing you do on the fly. We are a th- we are a thing. But are we the thing, or are we just a thing? I mean, this is the ours. Thing. Is yours? So many things. I think Marvel. I should have said. I should have said an awesome Marvel. thing. I think Marvel. Alex, what kind of thing. soup you making today? <sighs> Manhattan. Ooh. Manhattan clam chowder is this week. Oh, my wife did a ham hock, so we did split pea. I, I, I had a, I asked Chat GPT, of course, how to do Manhattan clam chowder, so I'm doing another AI soup. That's all I do is AI soups, AI cooking. I'll be right now. Channel, I'm thinking it launching whole channel, just AI cooking. Again, thank you all, panelists. You guys are great. Oh, gotta love it, Jesse's. Final card.